This episode of Haunted Cosmos is brought to you by Right Response Ministries, Private Family Banking, and Squirrely Joe's Coffee. Did you know that patrons of Haunted Cosmos get access to a weekly patron-only bonus show called The Dusty Tome? And the top two tiers of patrons get early access to ad-free shows. Join today on patreon.com for these benefits and more. And now, on with the show. A man walked through his cornfield sometime before harvest in 1817. The hot Tennessee sun and the thick southern air weighed down on his already very tired shoulders. He didn't mind it too much, though. The slow trickle of constant sweat from his hair down into the collar of his shirt just meant he had worked hard that day, and that was good. The evening walk through the field was a bit of a treat for him, in fact. Long summer days meant that by the time he was finally able to come out here, golden hour was in full swing. The perfect light and the soft sounds of cornstalk leaves rubbing together from the breeze created a perfect setting to sort of decompress after all the day's labor. This man, John Bell, had gained a reputation of diligence, integrity, and piety in the local community over the 12 years or so that he and his family had lived on the banks of the Red River in Adams, Tennessee. The Bell's farm prospered each year, allowing Bell to assume the status of wealthy a status in life heretofore unknown to him. The hospitality that Bell and his wife Lucy exercised gave them a rich group of close friends they could enjoy. John's work as a lay elder at the local Baptist church gave him great influence in the town, and it meant that people really trusted him. And the six Bell children had begun to grow into well-adjusted and respectable youths who were well-liked by all. To John Bell, it really seemed like his risk had paid off. You see, before settling in Adams, the family lived in Edgecombe County, North Carolina. They had done quite well there too, but after John and Lucy had been settled there for eight years, they packed up all they had and punched out for the Red River, following rumors of rich lands full of potential profit. The opportunity to really be a part of building something great and new. The journey west wasn't an easy one for the Bell family. They were forced to cross the Appalachians and Smokies in the dead of winter with livestock and young children in tow. But of course, they had finally made it to the Red River. And as John walked through the rows of tall corn, considering how things had gone for them since that treacherous journey, he was grateful to God for it all. Unfortunately, John's good fortune would soon be disturbed by terrible shadow. Even as he basked in the late golden sunlight of that triumphant summer afternoon, a grotesque portent of this fast-approaching doom met him in the fields. 
while he meandered down one of the rows of corn, carelessly looking for weeds or pests every now and again. He caught sight of an odd shape in his periphery. He glanced up to see some strange creature standing about 40 feet in front of him. The thin pillars of shadow from the corn shrouded the figure at first, but John's sight was keen and so he quickly made out what he was looking at. A great dog stood in the way. It wasn't moving a muscle, not even a flick of the tail, but its eyes, set in the statuesque figure, fixed John with a glacial stare. As John's mind made sense of what his eyes were seeing, adrenaline flooded his bloodstream. The sounds of rustling leaves and bending stalks weighed down by heavy ears of blue corn faded away in an instant. All was silent for John, save the pounding drum of his heartbeat, a heartbeat that grew quicker with each breath. John shouldered his rifle and took aim at what he later described, sober as a judge on his bench, as a great black dog with the head of a pale rabbit. What wicked man would make such an unnatural beast? John fired, snapping the terror-drenched silence like a dead branch. But when the smoke of the rifle cleared, the beast had vanished. Just a couple of days later, Betsy Bell, John's oldest daughter, took her younger siblings outside to play. As they filed down the wooden front porch steps, Betsy glanced over to the tree line of tall oaks surrounding the property. She suddenly stood motionless in shock as she watched an airy-looking little girl in a green and white dress swing like Tarzan on one of the low-hanging branches. She giggled and climbed the branch, her face blurred, until she dissolved into thin air. What did it all mean? John wasn't given to hyperbole, and he and Lucy had certainly raised their children to tell the truth. Why were they suddenly seeing such disturbing oddities? John would have little time to consider an answer. As the family slept one night soon after Betsy saw the vanishing girl in the trees, the younger boys began to stir. They heard a sound in their room like someone casually tapping their fingernail on a wooden board. The boys, remembering the unfortunate truth that mice and rats sometimes get into the walls of a home, brushed off the noise and tried to go back to sleep. But the noise persisted, even growing louder. Eventually the sound, and it's hard to describe exactly, sort of evolved. It wasn't really in their room anymore. Now they were hearing sounds outside of the closed bedroom door, sounds akin to metal chains being dragged across the hardwood planks, gentle and steady like a fisherman reeling in his spinnerbait. The boys were wide awake now, buzzing with a cocktail of curiosity and fear. But they didn't yet try to wake their parents. That would mean going out into the hallway, out into the presence of whatever was moving those chains. So they sat, quietly alert, in the dark. Finally, for a moment, everything ceased. No tapping, no dragging, just a dark and quiet room, dimly lit by the moonlight through the window. But it was only for a moment. In a mad rush, sound exploded out of the silence, as if someone was punching as hard as they could against the walls, like a frantic someone was trapped inside their bedroom walls. The chains outside, or, or whatever they were, slammed hard against the ground again and again, like a cruel chariot driver whipping his horses into a foaming gallop. The deafening sound of barking dogs rang in the room, disorienting the boys and making them sing out tearful screams for help. John and Lucy burst into the room, having heard not only the boys' screams, but everything else too. The pounding, the dragging, the barking. It wasn't just the boys, it was the whole house. 
But just as soon as they pushed the door open and filled the room with candlelight, it all stopped. Moonlit silence regained her footing, as if the house itself breathed a deep sigh of relief. Nobody spoke a word. John slowly walked over to the bed of one of his younger sons and knelt down. He shone the light on one of the bedposts with a concerned look on his face. Bite marks. The bedpost looked like a mad dog had chewed it up. Just then, desperate and gargling screams rang out of Betsy's room. John ran to her while Lucy stayed with the boys. He slammed against the door and stumbled in to find Betsy screaming and convulsing on the bed. Not knowing what else to do, John called out his daughter's name, gently trying to shake her awake. After a few seconds, she quieted and came to, utterly confused as to what had happened. She did know one thing, though. Something was trying to kill her. Thus began four years of supernatural terror for the Bell family, an all-out assault by an entity now known as the Bell Witch. Over the coming months and years, John and Lucy Bell, along with their children, would experience countless inexplicable events ranging from mean and malicious to seemingly miraculous and helpful at the hands of a so-called poltergeist that seemed bent on tormenting them as a family. It soon became obvious that the Bell Witch Poltergeist took special interest in John Bell and his oldest daughter, Betsy. After that first night of raucous noise throughout the house, John would be struck with a sort of lockjaw. For almost a full year, he would go days without saying anything or eating anything, claiming that when the fit struck, he was unable to move his tongue at all and so could only drink liquids, and even that was difficult for him. The family tried to keep all of this a, a secret for many months. They were certain that it was just some sort of random coincidences that kept piling on one another. Finally, though, the Bells, led by John, became convinced that something more was at play. In the night, the whole house would be startled awake by the sounds of Betsy's screams, half scared and half painful screams. Her bedsheets would be yanked off of her throughout the night before her skin was pinched by unseen fingers. Her arms were pricked with unseen pins, and her face was repeatedly slapped and hair was pulled out by unseen hands. Like I said, unfortunately for them, Betsy and John seemed to be this thing's favorites of the family. As the stakes kept getting raised and the consistency of events proved too much to chalk up to mere coincidence, John asked for the second opinion of one of his friends, James Johnston. After the families enjoyed a lovely Lucy Bell dinner together and retired to bed, the Johnstons immediately realized how severe the situation was. John Bell had not only not exaggerated, he had actually undersold the activity to his friend. Right as the house went completely quiet and fell asleep, Johnston and his wife were awoken by the alarming feeling of their sheets being ripped from the bed. They felt handled and tossed around slightly, pinched and poked and prodded by some force that was in the air. The next morning, after a night of no sleep for everyone in the house, Johnston looked at John and said, it's a spirit, just like in the Bible. You see, Johnston thought this because after he and his wife had been harassed by this invisible force in the night, he sat up in the bed and tried to speak with whatever it was that was doing it. The man was convinced that whatever it was, was intelligent. Ultimately, he heard no reply but that would all change very soon. As more and more visitors came to the house to experience the strange haunting, 
more and more requests for the entity to speak were offered up to the house's walls. Finally, after one such supplication had rendered everyone in the room silent for a moment, they all heard a faint whistling that seemed to originate from all around them. A whistling whisper grew into a bold hiss and whine in response to questions that eventually evolved into intelligent speech. In response to the question, who are you and what do you want, came a weak, feeble voice in reply. I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but I have been disturbed. A stunned silence followed this declaration. Probably only a few seconds, but which felt like minutes to the witnesses. But once the shock of the reply had passed, the natural follow-up question worked its way out of one of the guests' mouth. How are you disturbed? What makes you unhappy? I am the spirit of a person who is buried in the woods nearby, and the grave has been disturbed. My bones disinterred and scattered, and one of my teeth was lost under this house, and I am here looking for that tooth. John Bell sat utterly stunned. Forgotten memory from years earlier rose up in his mind. Some of his workers had been clearing a plot of land on the farm when they suddenly stumbled upon some Indian graves. One of Bell's sons and his friend, a lad named Corbin, went out to inspect the site for themselves, hoping to find some valuable relics left there by men long past meant to help their fallen brothers float across the sticks into death. Unfortunately for them, no such valuables could be found among the bones. But in a macabre move, young Corbin decided he didn't want to leave empty-handed, so he snatched away one of the jawbones lying there in the earth. He brought it back into the Bell's house and, while playing in the hallway, let go of the bone and launched it across the room. When the bone slammed into the wooden hall, a tooth knocked loose and fell through the cracks in the floor deep into the home's crawl space. John Bell, for his part, remembered reprimanding the boys before giving the jawbone to a slave who was tasked with taking it back to the gravesite and filling in the dirt that had exposed them in the first place. In the hopes of ending the haunting once and for all, he ran over to that same crack in the floor and pried up a couple of boards there. The ground was sifted and raked and even dug into, but nothing was found. As Bell and his visitors wiped sweat from their brows and brushed dirt off their hands, a cackling, mocking laughter rang out all around them. The ghost rebuked Bell for his foolishness, claiming it was all a prank just for old Jack. See, old Jack is what the witch, who eventually gave herself the name Kate, called John Bell. Kate continued to hate John and Betsy, but over time, her unmotivated ire towards Betsy waned away. Kate, the Bell's own poltergeist, wanted to give all her energy to destroying old Jack. And so she claimed that before all of this was over, she would kill the man. The years wore on and the haunting continued. Kate would talk openly now to anyone who asked her questions. She pulled malicious pranks on John and Betsy, but always seemed fond of Lucy, old Jack's wife. Kate would bring Lucy fresh fruit and cold water to drink in the afternoon. The woman didn't know what to make of it. At one point, she even saved one of Lucy's younger sons who got stuck in a cave on the edge of their property. In every instance of uncharacteristic kindness from the ghost, admiration for Lucy seemed to be the motivation. Kate would have deep theological arguments with clergymen who came to visit. She would quote great lengths of scripture at once and would never waste an opportunity to sow doubt among the visitors about the more difficult verses in the scriptures. 
She would make sacrilegious and even blasphemous jokes before suddenly taking on a deadly serious tone and correcting what she perceived to be faulty theology set forth by various elders and deacons of the town. She would claim to know what was happening in other states at the same moment that she was speaking. And as alarming as it may sound, many of the witnesses had any skepticism shattered by her proving herself right in this regard. She'd make some claim of something happening in the town of a visitor's close relative. The visitor would write to their relative and seek confirmation of Kate's lies, but they never caught her in one. Every time, the visitor would return utterly bewildered. Kate had been exactly correct in her reporting of events in the distant town. Eventually, despite the party tricks that drew so much attention from everyone in the area, which reportedly even led to a visit from then-general and future president Andrew Jackson, John Bell grew weary. His son, Richard William Bell, recounts his father's last days with the most sincere words of affection to the man in his book about the events, the book titled Our Family Trouble, the story of the Bell Witch in Tennessee. He describes the immense hero of faith, love, devotion, integrity, and even joviality that his father was, and laments that such a man would suffer such anguish for so long that cost him so much. He concludes the story of old Jack in that book with the following account. Quote, the crisis, however, came on the morning of December 19th. Father, sick as he was, had not up to this time failed to awake at his regular hour, according to his long custom, and aroused the family. That morning he appeared to be sleeping so soundly. Mother quietly slipped out of the room to superintend breakfast, while brothers John and Drew looked after the farmhands and feeding the stock, and would not allow him to be disturbed until after breakfast. Noticing then that he was sleeping unnaturally, it was thought best to awaken him. When it was discovered that he was in a deep stupor and could not be aroused to any sensibility, <clears throat> Brother John attended to giving him medicine and went immediately to the cupboard where he had carefully put away the medicines prescribed for him, but instead he found a smoky-looking vial, which was about one-third full of dark-colored liquid. He set up an inquiry at once to know who had moved the medicine, and no one had touched it, and neither could anyone in the place give any account of the vial. Dr. George Hobson of Port Royal was sent for in great haste and soon arrived. Also neighbors John Johnson, Alex Gunn, and Frank Miles arrived early, and were there when the vial was found. Kate, the witch, in the meantime broke out with joyous exultation, exclaiming, It's useless for you to try to relieve old Jack. I've got him this time. He'll never get up from that bed again. Kate was then asked about the vial of medicine found in the cupboard, and replied, I put it there and gave old Jack a big dose of it last night while he was asleep, which fixed him. This was all the information that could be drawn from the witch, or any other source concerning the vial of medicine. Certain it was that no member of the family ever saw it before, or could tell anything about it. In fact, no vial and no medicine of any kind had been brought to the house by anyone else except Dr. Hobson, and then it was handled very carefully. Dr. Hobson, on arrival, examined the vial and said he didn't leave it, and couldn't tell what it contained. It was then suggested that the contents be tested on something. Alex Gunn caught a cat, and Brother John ran a straw into the vial and drew it through the cat's mouth, wiping the straw on its tongue. The cat jumped and whirled over a few times, stretched out, kicked, and died very quick. 
father lay all day and night in a deep stupor, as if under the influence of some opiate, and could not be aroused to take any medicine. The doctor said he could detect something on his breath that smelt very much like the contents of the vial that he had examined. How father could have gotten it was a mystery that could not be explained in any other way except that testified by the witch. The vial and contents was thrown into the fire, and instantly a blue blaze shot up the chimney like a flash of powder. Father never revived or returned to consciousness for a single moment. He lingered along through the day and night, gradually wearing away, and on the morning of December 20th, 1820, breathed his last." End quote. The story of the Bell family's poltergeist, Kate, is just one example among literally thousands that land in the broad and messy category that we might call ghost stories. Whether it be the haunting of a family by a poltergeist like what you just heard, a person seeing a crisis apparition of a loved one or a friend soon after their death, a residual haunting that seems to occur with the same events at the same place no matter who's there to observe, a dark place that seems to attract restless spirits to itself, or even an object that seems to be haunted in some way. The concept of the ghost has captured man's imagination for time immemorial. Perhaps it has captivated him for as long as death has been exercising his horrible curse over man. But what is a ghost? Or maybe a better question would be, is a ghost? Are they real? If so, where do they come from? Are they good, bad, both? Can we neatly file ghosts away into some well-defined folder of being in God's spoken world? Do we have reason to believe these seemingly phantasmagorical stories like the one told by the Bell family? What happens? How do we react when the lines between the seen and the unseen blur and melt together? In this episode of Haunted Cosmos, we're asking all of these questions and more. Though we may not have all the answers to our own satisfaction, we will try to sift the ghostly tales and find the truth behind the phantasms. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Haunted, Haunted Cosmos. We're so locked in, we didn't rehearse that at all. We've never done that before, have And we? it was so good. It was perfect. Welcome to minute 23. That's right. Roughly, of this podcast, <laughs> when we are just now. A lot of podcasts are 23 minutes long. Our cold opens Our are 20. cold open is Someone on YouTube said, why is the cold open so long? Stop. Because we just want it. And then to we be. said for every time for every like this comment gets, we're making the next cold open one minute longer. One minute longer. So it's up to five hundred <laughs> likes. Like so guys, uh, this is still the cold it's open. It's gotten a little out of control. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Ben, it's it's good to be here. And uh we're actually sitting here recording this on uh, All Hallows Eve. That's right. All Hallows Eve before the Hallow Tide begins. Mm -hmm. our, yeah. our our blessed Hallow Tide. This is providential. We didn't yeah. plan that at all. Yeah. We're dressed up. Um I am actually dressed up as Ben. That's right. I am dressed up as our associate Dan Burkholder. Dan Burkholder. So it's <laughs> kind of a are matching perfectly today. Nobody could find a, a way to dress up as me because it's just not it's a way too to handsome. like you can't get that handsome. You can't capture that physiognomy in a mask. I mean, you have to get one of those latex Mission Impossible things and it's just it's not the same. Those are really expensive. The magic is out. gone. They do have them. Yeah, yeah. But they're very expensive. Brian, 
Do we have any housekeeping to get yeah. into before we actually go to the meat Real and quick, bones we're going to get to some Bell Witch stuff. We're going to go back over that story a little bit. Don't you know? Sometimes we forget to do that with the cold open. Yeah, we're actually yeah. going to do that. And then we have a lot of other great stories for you. This and is a story-rich episode. Yeah, it is absolutely a story-rich episode here. But one of the things that you guys might not, not actually know is that this show is a full-time job. This is actually yes. more than a full-time job yes. when you really factor it in here. Ben actually works full-time for Haunted Cosmos. It's a dream scenario. Yeah. <laughs> ben, <laughs> ben went to school to become an engineer. I was Knowing an engineer. that eventually the arc of that would be a spooky <laughs> story Christian podcast. Like, it's obvious. Most uh, engineers, that is their real God tells the, the best stories. God they, writes the best stories. Honestly, they're hilarious. Ben works full-time for Haunted Cosmos. We, we put in more than 40 hours of work per episode. Yeah. We hope it shows. Yeah, we do hope it shows. You know, you know in these multi-hour deep dive episodes with hours and hours of research yeah. and writing and Ten to fifteen thousand words of writing per episode, yeah. um, which is like three of my sermons. And then the like dusty it's, it's tome each week is is usually yep. at least a five thousand word <laughs> manuscript. Yep. So every week, you know, writing on average between ten and twenty thousand words a week. Yes, that's a lot. It's a lot. And then hours of research. <laughs> it, dude, it's so much fun. It's so much I mean, fun. <laughs> we have a great time. We do. We couldn't do this without all of your support. And mm -hmm. so thank you to all of our supporters at Patreon.com/slash Haunted Cosmos. You, if you are not supporting the show, if you like it, you can sign up today. You get lots of benefits, even while you're helping keep. That's one benefit is that we can keep doing this. Yeah, yeah. And making you, the you're show. A, you're an integral part of making the show. But you get other. I mean, all, uh, most of the tiers of support get early access to the main episodes. All yep. of them get ad-free episode of the main episodes. Every patron gets access to the Dusty Tome the Dusty that Ben Tome. mentioned, yes, which is a freestanding weekly podcast just for patrons. Yeah, and it is, I think, every bit as good as freestanding podcasts like Lore. Yeah, so it's some twenty to sixty minutes depending on the week. Yeah, I, I feel like we're really hitting our stride. Our longest yeah. episode's been forty-five minutes. Okay, yeah. Uh, but it was all scripted, and, and it's just one story. It's coherent, or we'll do a deep dive yep. into a topic over the course of a few episodes. Ben's done a multi-part series on the Salem Witch yeah, Trials. Yeah, if you're interested in the historical Witch Trials, look, you should it's you really should good. become a patron. And uh, very informative. Ben does a great job with that. Wow, that's uh, kind, you do. Of, you. That's kind you do. of you to say. And my <laughs> wife agrees. My kids agree. You do a great job. Uh, we're, we're also really thankful for our sponsors who sponsor the show. I know yeah. you guys, like, not everybody loves ads. Only crazy people love ads. Yeah, no one... Some, like people don't skip back and re-listen to the <laughs> right. Like to no the, listener loves the ads. to the ads, but <laughs> they're important to keep this thing going. Yeah. And we try to partner with Christian brothers and sisters who are going to provide you with genuinely helpful products and services. Yeah. So listen to the ads, check them out, go look at the services they're offering. One partnership that we're excited to just let you up here. This isn't an ad. Don't don't click out. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. actually important um, to the to the show. Is that we're we're trying to identify companies like that to partner with long term. And even, uh, you know, have relationships that are mutually beneficial over the long haul. Yep. For companies we really believe in, like that we want to see this become a household name, one of those we just started working with is uh, a family company, Indigo Sundries Soap Company. Yes. Which you can find online at indigosundriesoap.com. They make extremely high-quality soaps, liquid soaps, and bar soaps and that it's, are— it's true. Like I've used the They're soap. really good. It's really, really good. Yeah. I and use it, them on my hair and everything. Like <laughs> everything down. Just 
Don't picture it. Stop there. Hey, don't picture it. Just a delightful family, too. Great family. Great family. Actually, he's also a luthier, and he made a guitar for me that's You're going to have to tell people what luthier is. It means someone who makes fretted instruments like violins or And he, like, handmade this guitar. And it's immaculate. Yeah, it's very, very well made. That's the kind of family they are. But these soaps, what I love about them is they're completely free of seed oils. Oh, yeah. um, they're free of nasty pharmaceuticals, fake chemical scents, hormone disruptors. Yep. It's a family-owned Christian company. They're we really want to see skin. long-term become a household name. Yep. So go check them out. Um, support support what they're doing, and you can replace your cheap. A lot of these soaps that are like a buck a bar on this, they're not even called soaps. They can't legally be called soaps. Because they're technically not soaps. They're like Ryan's chemical cleansers. Soap research. Yes, this matters to me. If you listen to Brighthearth, one of my other podcasts, yeah, yeah. you know that this matters to my wife and I. Um, these guys are making real soap the way your great-great-grandmother would. Uh, I really like the Cambrian Blue Clay Soap and the Homestead Hero Soap. I had a um, – it was either a morning or evening, like, sunset rum. Mm. And it was – it yeah. smelled so good. My wife yes. really loved it. It was awesome. Yeah, so while I can't say that Indigo Sundry soaps will keep the Mothman away, I have never seen the Mothman anywhere close to somebody who's using Indigo Sundry soaps. Which is important to know. Not even one. There is actually in recorded history, That's, there is no instance of the Mothman attacking someone and if who has what? cleansed and with these soaps. And if you get some indigo soap and then you encounter the Mothman, you are the problem. <laughs> Not the soap. <laughs> it was you. It was it your was, fault. Stop with the Ouija it's board. It's all and, your fault. You know, cut it out. All right, guys. So, Ben, that's that's what we got for housekeeping. Um, let's let's, let's get, get into this. to it, my guy. Okay. Let's get – tell us how we're going to handle this episode. Yes. Because we have – we're on page nine of like 134 of, for of, this of episode. 27. 27. It's literally a third of the we're way. A third of the way. So, so got a lot. Let's let's do it. This is going to I I mentioned it earlier. It's going to be a story heavy episode. The reason for that partly is to hide how a uh, few concrete opinions I I actually have about this. <laughs> Uh, this is kind of a weird topic when you yeah. get into it. Ghosts. Yeah. And I think it's important first to define what would you say a ghost is, Brian? Yeah, what so that is the question though, isn't it? Okay, yeah. So when, what, when what do people we think of it. as a ghost? Like I would say mm -hmm. that when people say ghost, they're generally talking about an undead uh, spirit of a person who was formerly alive. Yeah, normally what people are referring to culturally when they say a ghost, they're talking about the spirit, the disembodied spirit of a dead yes. human being that for whatever reason, it's either left some kind of um, psychic energy imprinted yeah. on an object like the stone tape theory, that, right. like a vinyl record where when they're making it, it's um, a, a needle that's literally putting the impression into the vinyl of the sound waves. Yeah, the sound waves. So, the, so there's a theory. Again, this is we're not endorsing yeah, any. We're, we're, <laughs> this is just we're saying this is what people believe. Um, there's a theory that if a highly emotional event, like a, an, an execution or a, a slave that was mistreated, you know, hear mm -hmm. that in early America, injustice, or, yeah. you know, an injustice that's occurred, or a young child, or you know, uh, an, a, a king in Britain who had successors to the throne when they were children, killed and buried in the staircase of a castle, yep. and that you hear their laughter, and the, it's just the stone holding their psychic energy, and maybe the spirit's not there, but but some kind of energy is, yep. or it is a human spirit, but sometimes people even mean that there is a category of spiritual entity that is different from a human spirit that's a trickster mm -hmm. and maybe not even a human, yeah. but some kind of other thing, a demon or an incubus or 
there's a million different things that's, that people might mean. When and they're, they and they're kind of like, and they're able to get information somehow about mm-hmm. people that lived in a place yeah. or whatever. And, and so they're kind of wearing their mask and they're pulling yeah. tricks on people. Sometimes they predict the future. Sometimes yeah. they will tell you things happening in distant places. Sometimes they'll... I mean, so the, the, Bell Witch the Bell Witch for, was, for is a great example. So here's what we're going to do. Because there's, there's a bunch of different categories and all of them kind of fall under or into the big bucket of ghosts. Yeah. So <laughs> the plan going forward is to talk about the cold open. Yeah. Discuss that. Mm-hmm. Throughout the whole show, we're going to be talking big picture about ghosts in general. Mm-hmm. But we're going to address these different categories of ghosts. The first being poltergeist, which was the Bell Witch, poltergeist. Mm -hmm. The other one being crisis apparition, where uh, someone has a loved one maybe that passes away. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, within the first 24 hours of their passing or some other big tragic event, they see an apparition of that person. That person appears to them. Yeah, exactly. Some, and it seems just, it, it, it's not like g- ghastly or anything. Sometimes it's totally normal. Right. They seem to be a totally <laughs> human person. And sometimes it is a little bit more ghostly. Like Brian could but, be a crisis apparition for me right now. There's no way of really- That would mean I'm dead. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't again, want that we're not true. endorsing any of this yet. Right. We're, we're just, just telling you this is the category that people describe. And, and then the other one is a residual haunting, mm-hmm. uh, which would be like, the the story of resurrection mary you know yeah. she's she's dancing with a guy at a ball they have a great night yes. they kissed in the night Classic and she's story. like oh can you drive me home because i don't have a car i don't know why she's british can, can you can you drive me home Shane? yeah she's from yeah, Shane. can you drive, drive me home, home yeah Podolsky. so anyway <laughs> that's not what and she then they like. and then they get in the car they drive and eventually she just says stop the car she gets out and she walks across the street to this cemetery and she just disappears. disappears. So a residual haunting is like, it's a pattern. Yeah, it happens over It happens and over. the same to different people, no matter who it is or what time it is. When the moon is full. Exactly. When you look in the Victorian manor window, you will see the little slave girl that jumped out to her death to escape the horrible abuse of her You will see little death. Sylvia, and she's yeah, yeah. crying for her father. Yes, every time. Yes. Ah, oh, yes. great voice. By residual way. haunting. Haunted house. Haunted house. Another category where you have... a. Paranormal activity that seems to be tied to a location, a and home. like the history of that location, yeah, and what happened there, and right. all of where people are often trying to find, you know, like the taps, the ghost hunting show. Yeah, they're always like digging through. Did anybody die here? Did, was there die? anything sus that happened here? Like if a house, <laughs> I mean, okay, but look at this. You uh, say that, but pe- a lot of people get freaked out by that. Yeah, real estate agents in in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. I know this because one time I took a class. They have to disclose if someone has died in a house before Hmm. because a lot of people are like, I don't want to buy a house that someone has actually died in Mm -hmm. because it could be haunted. And then the emo goth kid shows up and he's like, you don't have to convince me. I was already going to buy the house. I'll pay double. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or a haunted object. A haunted object. So Mm -hmm. the most most common example would be like a haunted doll. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, creepy. Which all of them are haunted. First of all. Every doll is haunted. You should just be safe. Just assume. Those like really... I mean, they say they're like lifelike, but they're just not. Just to show how unscared I am. Porcelain dolls. When I go to sleep at night, I surround myself with various <laughs> dolls and I put a kitchen knife in each of their hand. And I just say, Just I don't to show you how courageous I am, one time I was sleeping in my aunt's house in her mm-hmm. guest bed and she had, a, I don't know why old women did this. But she had a bunch of porcelain <laughs> dolls set up all over the room uh-huh. looking at the bed. Oh, come on. 
And I, I like Nana and, knew what she was. I doing. went and slept on the floor in the in the living room. Nana I was went like, to her room and cackled. Dude, she I, was like, "Oh, he's not gonna sleep." I was like, "Like, what he's are gonna you be doing? scarred for life." Come on, was insane. Nana like a therapist? She was like looking for future business. No, she was like a very normal, just old Southern woman. You know, like really good. Cook. Was your Nana the Bell Witch? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, funny enough, that same trip. This is a total rabbit trail. That same trip, I saw uh, the movie The Skeleton Key. Yeah. Which is a very- <laughs> Haven't seen it. Well, at Haven't the time, it. it scared the crap out of me. Yeah. I was seven years old watching mm-hmm. this. And then we watched The Grudge later. Oh. I'm like, my older sister, why did you let me do this? I don't watch horror movies. I've been trying to convince Lexi, my wife, for- It's my wife. Yeah. Right. Did you know that? I did. Um, For every night this week to watch Signs with me. Such a good movie. I want to watch it so bad. <laughs> And she's like, I won't sleep for for days. So, so I'm a good husband, and I'm like, do it, <laughs> do it. It's like the uh, Clockwork Orange thing where yeah. they like force your eyes open. Which, by the way, is a Watch. horrible movie that you should I don't watch. even know it. I have not seen it. I just know that. I didn't even scene. know that was a movie. It's like they they reprogram his mind. I've never even looked at anything before ever. I haven't even <laughs> opened my eyes yet. Anyway, first time. Well, you're so handsome. It do. <laughs> first wow. thing I saw. First thing I see. Oh, Nowhere wow. to go but down. Nowhere to go but down. <laughs> so why don't we talk first? Let's let's go back to this poltergeist bell witch yeah. scenario, Ben. Let's talk through it a little bit. Let's talk skeptical account. Let's talk what do we think. Yeah. So the thing that Give separates the the poltergeist type haunting from just a haunted house is that the poltergeist doesn't seem to necessarily be tied to a history of events in the house. It's just more yeah. trickster, more trickster-ish. It, it will pretend like it is. Exactly, which she did. Just to mess with you. Right, and there's even this whole history of this woman named Kate Bell mm-hmm. who used to live in that town who got accused of witchcraft, you know, back in the day, as one did. As one did. <laughs> Her last name was Bell? Kate Bell. The same as Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. It wouldn't have been Bell. No, it, it was, was something different. Else. It was Kate something else. It wasn't kissing Kate Barlow, I know that. <laughs> It was something else, but her name was Kate something and she was accused of witchcraft and they found out that like, actually that just couldn't be it because she was, she was just, I think it was Kate Kardashian. It wasn't, it was an early Kardashian. Although they are all witches. (laughs) Kardashian's hardest hit. If the shoe fits. Yeah. So it would lie. It seems to have knowledge of things that are going on. Okay. First of all, let's just get our, let's get all of our footnotes out of the way here. People say this is all made up. And um, it could have been. Some people are like, this is just early folklore. People mistake it for history, blah, 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 blah. People uh, people accuse Lucy Bell of being the- Faking the, it. The Kate witch. Um, uh-huh. And there's literally- a hoax. If any of the, of like the visitor accounts are to be believed, that's impossible because- right. The whole family would be with them in the room. Like everyone would be in the same yeah. room. Yeah. And these things would happen. So- if the witness accounts are to be believed, it wasn't a hoax. Yeah. But you have to believe the witness yeah. accounts. So so there you go. Some people say it's a hoax. Like just, again, as with anything when you're talking about something that happened several hundred years ago, that you can't replay the video or the tape. Yeah. Or like this is like, so we know Bigfoot exists. Right. Because we, of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Exactly. We know for sure. And there's no question. Uh, I mean. <laughs> and if you question it, you're not a serious person. Yeah, like you believe we landed on the moon and the Bigfoot <laughs> you is believe fake. Birds are real. <laughs> you believe birds are real. No, so getting getting that, like just just yes, we we understand, guys. Folklore, um, these early accounts sometimes they're hard to sift. Yeah, yeah. But if you if you believe these historical accounts, and there are many others that rhyme with them, with respect to poltergeist, 
activity, then I think the first thing that makes me um, really, at least I think an obvious category first is that it's not good. Okay. Let's just start there. Yeah. It's not a good thing. This isn't like something that you should want or seek or be like, oh, I wish I had my own poltergeist. Look, it brought Lucy fruit. Yeah, but it also brought Betsy horrible pain. And killed John. And it brought John death. And murdered John, okay? (laughs) You don't want You don't want. Even go back to to our Skinwalker Ranch series. Mm -hmm. The Sherman family mm-hmm. claimed to have poltergeist, poltergeist activity. type activity Salt going on in their home. being switched. And that was more like, you're being very rude and inconveniencing me. Stop being rude. <laughs> but it still was bad. Poltergeists are like toddlers. <laughs> they care about nobody <laughs> Maybe they're just toddler ghosts. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They're teething. They're just <laughs> yeah. like, they're, they're so That rude. was the bite marks on the bed. They're just rude. <laughs> they're just rude. Um, so, so to me, there's kind of like two categories here that are, I think even interesting to discuss or possible. Yeah. One of them is much like closer to the shore in terms of something that we know for sure exists and and has parallels. And that would obviously be demonic activity where yeah. this is trickster, hates people, you know, trying to deceive, trying to, again, the theological argument that mm-hmm. would take place in this would say, yeah, that could easily be some kind of demonic activity. The thing that gets me with that, though, mm-hmm. especially with stories like Poltergeists, mm-hmm. where it's not all just horribly evil on its face, is what is the end game deception, really? Like, Kate achieved, if the story's to be believed, mm-hmm. Kate achieved the death of old Jack, which, according to his children, meant the death of, you know, a real titan of faith in their family. Mm-hmm. He was, a, according to them, a good man. Um but what really, what else was achieved? Was it just like this malicious attack on one good Christian man? It, it kind of reminds me of like, well, what's even the point of the man chained in the, in the graveyard? Like, or throwing someone yeah. in the fire, or it's just malicious activity that is supernatural, that's oriented in a way that is opposed to God and to his image bearers. Yeah. So that's a category. It, it I mean, certainly if could nothing be. else, it sowed despair in the yeah. rest of the family mm-hmm. and in all the visitors. Yeah. Doubt, you know, a doubt of faith. Yeah. Where Kate Bell would argue with the clergyman. Yes. And, and she would, at every turn, she'd be trying to sow doubt in yeah. people's faith. Making fun of them, making which, sacrilegious jokes. That's a big red flag of like, yeah. okay, this, is, this isn't this is just like you're pulling pranks. That's a, a red flag in anybody that wants to marry your daughter or <laughs> in a ghost. Yes. <laughs> either way, red flag, either way. <laughs> so true. If they Hank. do that kind of stuff. So demonic activity is going to be with with just about everything that we say we see in the supernatural world is an obvious possible category. Yeah. Um, the other category that's a little further out from shore that has but but here's the thing. But when I say it, you're going to be like, whoa, that's no, no, crazy. it has legs. But it has historic. Um, uh, it has a lot of historic legs because yes. it's it's a category of being that many Christians throughout the centuries have not only believed in, but considered to be like, well, obviously. Like, duh. And that would be like the fairy right. or spiritual category that's almost like a, a, the spiritual version of an animal. Yes. It's not a person and it's not an angelic being or a demonic spirit. But it's but it's somehow, a, it's a spirit. It's, it's sometimes people would put, think, think Bigfoot is in this category, hobgoblins, A lot of people think fairies. even like aliens and UFOs would fall into yes. this category where it's, some are good and some seem to be uh, not 
yeah. bad. Sometimes you'll hear him referred to as <laughs> elemental spirits, yeah. which there's debate about what Paul meant in Colossians when he talks about the elemental spirits. Is he talking about a literal being or is he talking about just the elementary principles of man-made religion? Yeah, the like Old there's, Testament law. And, there's debate. Yeah. Um, but this is certainly a category that many Christians over – we're going to do episodes on this in the future. Yeah, yeah. But, this, is a, this is like a scratching the surface thing. But to – to Brian's point, it's not just like, oh, well, the medieval Catholics thought that the fairies existed. Uh-huh. No, it's not just them. Of course they did because uh-huh. they believed they, everything. They did. But, yeah, they definitely did. But it, the patristic fathers believed this mm-hmm. all the way up to the Puritans mm-hmm. were like, yes, of course, the fairies are a category of uh-huh. being. But the Puritans took this very puritanical stance on it where they said, well, clearly it's a it's a category of demon. Where they would uh, they would say it's real and it's a demon, right? Which is but but yeah. just before the Puritans, you know, you have figures like King James, which said like, yeah, you know, maybe, but the, it also could just be this kind of spiritual animal, yeah. That where they have a about. level of spiritual intelligence that we're not comfortable with, mm-hmm. uh, but they they aren't necessarily always good or always yeah. bad. This is one of those things where you get to a guy like C.S. Lewis, yes. who's clearly very who's comfortable. <laughs> yeah, in these regards, he's he's clearly very comfortable, especially when it comes to his fictional world. Yeah, which is just a reflection of his view of the real world. Yes. By the way, um, yes. he had no problem saying that there were river daughters and that there was the dryads and the naiads and the tree spirits and the the, the spirit of the river and there was all these things that. To the human mind and even the Christian mind for centuries, th- this was a normal feature of how they thought about the world. Right. And even yeah. – yeah, sorry, just to You're interrupt, good. Go ahead. just because I think this is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis does this really well in the Space – or the Ransom Trilogy yeah. series where he's saying that each planet you know, has a spiritual person, a yeah. spiritual personality that's guiding its motion in mm-hmm. accordance with God's will. And that could even fall in a fairy-type category – where you're saying that some of the planets and stars fell in rebellion, mm-hmm. but others and, – and he's others actually – by the way, Lewis isn't borrowing just from his own imagination. Mm-hmm. He's borrowing from men like Thomas Aquinas when he's yeah. saying things like right. that. Aquinas was like, yes, of course. Well, yeah, the I planets mean, are guided by spiritual intelligences. Yeah, this is just – So anyway, like just – that's not a crazy idea, mm-hmm. even though to our modern sensibilities it sounds yeah. very speculative and crazy, if not outright yeah. dangerous. So you have – Modern kind of reformed Christians, a lot of circles we would swim in. Some people would be totally comfortable with this discussion. Mm-hmm. Others would be like, "Wow, that's crazy! This, that's unhinged speculation. Right. It's 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 uh, unmoored from the Word of God. We know there's a category of demon. Why isn't that enough?" Right. And to them, I would say, I I 100% respect yeah. that instinct. But the point we're trying to make isn't whether or not you should 100% conclude that this kind of thing exists or not. It's actually just to say, first reckon with the fact that you're not if, – if everyone who thinks that is stupid, then then all of the – then most of the Christians of all time were just dumb. Were stupid. And they were we, – and we immediately get into that like chronological snobbery yeah. of like, well, we understand the world so thoroughly in the modern day because of our scientific method and our post-enlightenment rationalism and our empiricism. And, and, and I would just say often – we need to have more skepticism about our own instincts when yes. it comes to onto- uh, epistemology than we currently have. Epistemic humility is very good. It's important. But then also and, – and also like not, not having such a dualistic view of the world mm-hmm. where the, the God that created the world and redeems it 
uh, didn't actually reveal himself as he is in nature, which is not true. And that no reformer would say yeah. that. The, the other thing, though, that I would say is it. I mean, in a sense, yeah, it is speculation. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of what we do in in all of life is speculative. Yeah. The reason that you speculate, though, is because you're reading the book of nature. This is why Christians have had a category like this for all of time. Mm-hmm. Is you're reading the book of nature and you're seeing something that you're like, yeah, but it just doesn't fit. Yeah, you go, wait, but is this really a part of this category? Like there's there's the experiences that people have are various enough mm-hmm. and they and they don't fit into the mold enough where they're just saying like, there must be some other thing that God in his wisdom didn't reveal to us in scripture. Maybe it's a mystery we're supposed to find in nature. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe it is just those two categories. But So closing out, and one of our goals with an episode like this is to give some big categories and hooks yeah. that we can hang later episodes on that maybe are more of a deep dive into one poltergeist thing or yeah. one haunting supposedly of a house and maybe do more of a deep dive. So we're going to keep moving. Yeah, we want to plug along. It doesn't mean that we're done with that whole topic. We're trying to give some broad categories here. So again, think um, fake, that this is hoaxed or fake or mythology, like complete myth- fabrication, folklore out of whole cloth is one category that this story or these stories can fit in. Yeah. That's true. Yes. People make stuff up or tell stories. And then later those stories are confused for historical fact. Yeah. That's one thing. Uh, it could be, if it's real, um, some kind of demonic spiritual activity that would yep. certainly fit with the grain of much of the activity. Or number three, there there has been belief through Christian history in other types of beings fairy activity that this could potentially also fit with. Yeah. Um, and that would have been how more of the ancients and the medievals and would have pro- probably explained it, uh, an event like this. They probably w- would have gone to the third category uh, before the strictly demonic category. Yeah. Just based on until maybe she killed him. And then, <laughs> right. And then, well, and then they meld yeah. in that again, in the Puritan era in uh, forward in the reformational thinking in the reformed thinking is that they are often melded then where they say, yes, those things are real, but they're just a different name for a type of demonic activity. Right. Which is pretty compelling. Could also be a compelling view. So well, let's move on. Let's move to the crisis apparition. Yeah. We want to get though. into crisis apparition. Again, a crisis apparition is when something happens that's tragic to someone else, usually a death, and a loved one of that person sees them mm-hmm. after yeah. and talks with them as if it's an everyday experience. Yeah. So can you tell us about this woman, Nina, Nina DeSanto? DeSanto? Yeah, absolutely. In the late winter months of 2001, a hairstylist named Nina DeSanto diligently worked away in her little New Jersey salon. She was not extravagantly wealthy, nor was her salon the biggest or most popular in town, but it was hers. She was very proud of that. She had worked for so long to get this place, was firm in her decision that either even the tough days of anybody who's owned a business knows, she was going to enjoy every moment of owning and operating this business. This resolve really helped her make the best of it too. Her salon's atmosphere was always lighthearted, a relaxing place. It wasn't quiet like a spa. She didn't want it to be. She was always encouraging her clients and friends to just drop by anytime they wanted to. She was genuinely friends with her clients and aimed to make those kinds of relationships. I mean, you know, you're talking to these people as you take care of their salon needs. I've never been to a salon, don't know personally. It's just hair. But you can imagine <laughs> that all of these salon needs, many conversations, you could genuinely get to know somebody with uh, across these hours and hours 
of their life sitting in your salon chair. Her door was always open for people to hang out, cut loose after a long day at their own jobs. As the early setting of a winter sun led to a starry and cloudless night, one of her oldest friends came to take her up on that open door policy. Actually, DeSanto was in the early process of closing the place up after just bidding farewell to the final clients of the day. So when she saw Michael, her friend, standing just outside the door and waving, she quickly walked over and let him in. She could tell that he was in a great mood from the peaceful, almost serene smile on his face. It was one of the things that she liked most about Michael. You could always tell from his face whether he was happy or sad or mad about his, he was just an open book kind of guy. Today he was happy. Nina, I can't stay long. I just wanted to stop by and say thank you for everything. He got like this sometimes. His hopelessly romantic view of life made him lapse into the occasional heartfelt thank you to all of his friends for just being great friends to him. DeSanto soaked it up with Dwight. She was always so encouraged by Michael when he talked to her like this. So the two chatted a bit more, mostly small talk stuff about how the day had gone before Michael, keeping his promise, gave one last farewell, shuffled out of the store and back out into the cold night. DeSanto, grateful for such a great treat to end the day, finished closing up and made her way home. The next morning, a Sunday in DeSanto's only off day each week, she woke up late and started making a nice breakfast. Soon after beginning, however, she received a strange phone call. It was from one of her employees at the salon. The girl spoke through choked words and tears describing how Michael, their dear mutual friend, had died. The man had taken his own life. The body had just been found. DeSanto reeled at the news. How could this be? She had just spoken to him the night before, and he seemed so chipper, so, so jovial. How could a man go and end his own life in that kind of attitude? How had she not noticed that something was off? She could have saved him, and, and she didn't. She failed. And while DeSanto said these things to her friend, the girl on the other line quieted her sobbing. In a low and worried tone, she said, Michael died yesterday morning like 24 hours ago. You didn't see him last night. He was already dead by then. But if Nina DeSanto had not been talking to Michael, who at that point had been dead for over nine hours, who had she been talking to? What sort of categories may exist for this sort of thing? Do Christians actually have the ability to speak to this kind of experience, or do we have to settle for the modernist psychology explanation that it's all a construction of the experiencer's mind? That somehow there's a latent and psychic signal sent out by the deceased or troubled person that reaches the minds of their loved ones whose brains then form this entire scene that plays out before them as if it's really happening. We must reckon with the fact that some researchers claim that up to 30% of people say that they have experienced a crisis apparition type of event. And many of these people are proclaiming Christians. So do we have anything to say? Well, I think so. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It actually sits nearly 700 feet below sea level in the Jordan Valley and is surrounded by the Golan Heights, housing the famous Wheel of Giants, by the way, call back. Yes. That, that Golan Heights to the east and the foreboding Mount Hermon to the north and the west. All these factors play into it being a place that experiences frequent, sudden, and very violent storms. One night... A little less than 2,000 years ago, one such storm hit the vulnerable lake, 
Unfortunately, there were still people on it. After the Lord Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, a man Christ himself claimed was the greatest of those born of women, he withdrew to a desolate place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, but south of Bethsaida. Though he had gone there by himself, great crowds found out about it and followed him there to hear more of his words of life. Having pity on these tired people, the Lord performed one of the greatest miracles recorded in the scriptures when he fed a crowd of 5,000 men, not, not even talking about the women and children, by multiplying just five loaves of bread and two fish until it was enough for all to enjoy with plenty left over. After this marvelous event, the Lord bid his disciples to go before him back to the other side of the lake while he stayed behind to formally dismiss the crowd of people who had received his gift before going to pray by himself. Some time passed, and as the disciples were well into their journey to the western shore of Gennesaret, a brutal wind ripped across the water and met their little boat with great force. Their trip had just turned into a great test of physical endurance and even courage. The Apostle Matthew tells us that this wind continued to rage well into the night and that during the fourth watch of the night, the disciples saw something in the distance, now visible on the peak of a wave, now hidden in the valley of the next swell. A man was walking upon the surface of the water. Those who first noticed it cried out in shock and woke up the others. Soon they were all terrified by the spectacle. But why were they so terrified? Sure, someone was walking on the water, which is quite amazing and completely unheard of, but is it scary? We read thus in Matthew 14, 25 to 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples were afraid. Why? Because they thought that what they were seeing was far from the incarnate Lord. They thought that they were looking at a ghost. But surely they must have realized the uncanny resemblance this ghost bore to the Son of Man, right? In the midst of raging winds, if they were close enough to speak to Christ, wouldn't they also be close enough to make out his features? So what gives? Why were they so scared? Perhaps they thought that they were seeing the ghost of the Lord coming to them. Perhaps the terror came from them believing this meant that something terrible had happened to their rabbi while he was alone praying. Perhaps they thought that this was his spirit speaking in strictly human terms, who had come as an ambassador in the night to give them the horrible news. What you might notice is my very precise and repetitive use of the word perhaps. We don't know the disciples' motivations for being terrified of what they saw that night before learning that it was the Lord. But the story does betray something. The disciples seemed to have had a category in their minds for a ghost, an apparition, or a spirit that is wont to appear in the midst of some kind of crisis. The reason that I say that, mm -hmm. that last bit especially, that the disciples had a category in their mind, is because the word, the Greek word used in the text is phantasma mm -hmm. to describe ghost. It's used only one other time, and it's Mark, I believe it's Mark 7, which is Mark's version of these same events. Mm -hmm. That is the only time in the Old and New Testament that that word is used. Would you like to get control of your money and set up a system that will guarantee for the rest of your life tax-protected compounding interest and growth? How about having 24-7 electronic access to your money for funding wisely chosen investments, home improvements, and other large expenditures without going to the mainstream banks? 
This is not a dream, but can be a reality when working with our sponsor, Private Family Banking. You can find their contact information in the show notes below. To make this season even brighter, Private Family Banking is giving away a pair of tickets for the upcoming Blueprints for Christendom 2.0 conference hosted by Right Response Ministries. It's a $500 value taking place March 1st through the 3rd in 2024 in Taylor, Texas. To enter the ticket giveaway, join Private Family Banking's email list by sending an email to banking at privatefamilybanking.com with the subject line TICKETS in all caps and include your full name and mailing address in the body of the email. The ticket entry period will end at midnight central time on February 13th in 2024, and the winner will be notified via email on February 14th. You must be 18 years of age or older to enter, and only one email per person can be entered into this giveaway. Thank you. At all other instances, the word for uh, ghost, you know, or spirit yep. or shade is also the word for necromancer, mm. which immediately gives an evil connotation yeah. to things. Where it's obviously evil. It's clearly evil. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's just the word ghost. And, and that's a common use in the ancient world by other Greek writers, yeah. Plato, Plutarch, Euripides. They do have this category very clearly in their understanding, yeah. at least, of a human spirit that's not necessarily a negative or a positive thing. It just is. That's that's what it is. Right. They're seeing the spirit of a person that is disembodied. It's not in the body. It's not in the flesh, but it's walking about or it's interacting with people or you can sometimes see it. Yeah, it, it's very... So one of the Old Testament examples of a word that's used that's translated as ghost mm-hmm. into the English, Samuel. which is very rare, yeah. is Samuel. Yeah. But then also Isaiah 29 yeah. in verse oh, one through four. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Christ is talking... Er, Christ... God the Father, <laughs> but Christ also He's the Word <laughs> is is yeah is talking through the pen of Isaiah, and he says this. This is uh, chapter twenty nine, verses one through four. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost and from the dust your speech shall whisper. So this is an example of a modern translation being ghost, Mm -hmm. but the Hebrew word used there is actually the word for necromancer, mm-hmm. which I think plays into what's actually being said in the passage, yeah. which is that these people God is judging have become reprobates. Yeah. They, they, have, they have sundered the, the, the covenant and the love. The pulpit commentary for this passage says that the word refers both to necromancers and the spirits they claim to summon. So again, familiar, familiar spirits, spirits, clearly yeah. an evil connotation there. Yeah. But then we have Samuel. Samuel. Very highly debated passage yeah. or instance where Saul goes to the witch of Endor and she or she and he asks to speak to Samuel, who's dead at this time, the prophet Samuel. And uh, they <laughs> she does it. She calls him up. She seems shocked. Yeah. When he actually comes up. And here here's the Here's where this passage is highly debated. Yes. We've talked about it before. We land on the side that we actually think that Samuel was 
the one speaking. I've the, done a whole lecture real, about this. Yeah, the real <laughs> Samuel. It's actually um, in our Patreon stuff. Yeah. It's it's their strange Bible story stuff. But um, some people believe that this is just a counterfeit again of Samuel, and you know a lot of Reformed theologians believe that as well. So it's not like a it's not a crazy position or anything like that. Yeah. But the text doesn't seem to present it that way. Right. The, the, you have to bring that. The text very much just says it was Samuel Samuel said this. Right. It doesn't say, and then the fake Samuel, the familiar spirit of Samuel, and they get there by arguing the impossibility of the contrary by saying that given what we know about the spiritual world or what happens to human spirits, which is when they're sundered from the body, they either go to Sheol, the grave, which is a holding place for spirits awaiting judgment. Uh, In the Old Testament, prior to Christ, it also had a, a portion that would have been a, a, a place for the righteous. For yes. The, for the, those Abraham's who died in bosom faith, was there. Um, that I believe was liberated by Christ at his resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, and that now you either go to Sheol, awaiting Sheol being poured into hell, yep. or your spirit goes to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. You go to be with the Lord in paradise with awaiting the resurrection. Yeah. So it's not the final state. It's not fixed. It's not fully good yet. You yeah. want to be resurrected and embodied. Because Paul even called in Second Corinthians five, I believe. Paul even says that uh, when when the soul and body is bifurcated, the body goes to the uh, the sleeping intermediary resting place. Yeah, it's it's like a, a sleep. It's so a, your your body's rest. in the ground. Part of you really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your body is part of you is mm-hmm. in the ground, and your soul is with Christ. Yeah, and you're with and your your uh, soul is with Christ. So. Um, because we know that they they do argue like okay so it's p- impossible for for the real Samuel to come up but the the problem is that passage is presented as a weird thing yes where the witch is like she, see what she's you, normally expecting to have happen is her familiar spirit which is an evil spirit a demonic entity is going to pretend to do commerce with the dead right so that she can give messages to the living from Samuel but it's really, Saul. but she's like, oh wow, I've yeah. actually that's not my familiar spirit. That's not the demon I'm used to dealing with here. That's um, that's Samuel. That's the real like, deal. So she's, it's not good. It's all bad for Saul and for her. But Samuel gets up and he says everything you'd expect Samuel to do. Exactly. Like, what are you doing? You're done. Right. It's the, over. Why would a demon give a very godly message? It's, to it's Saul. exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what Samuel would say. So I bring all of that up to say that, um. We have biblical examples of the human disembodied soul as being a category of being. Yes. Okay. But yeah, go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to say. So clearly, Samuel's thing is a major exception. It's something weird. It is something weird that is not normally supposed to happen. Yes. Where even the practitioners of the dark arts uh-huh. are like, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. The only other example I can think of. Mm-hmm. Is transfiguration, mm-hmm. where where the where Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah with the Lord yeah. on the mount as he's transfigured. Yeah, they appear with them. That's the only other example I can uh-huh. I can think of that would even come close uh, to something like this, unless someone were to try to, which I'm not doing, mm-hmm. uh, to force the argument that yeah. the, the disciples were seeing an apparition of, of yeah. Christ, which I don't, obviously it's not true because uh-huh. it was actually Christ. <laughs> There's another passage that it can be argued in Acts, I think it's Acts 12, mm. where Peter is in prison yeah, and the angel of the Lord comes and frees him from prison. It's a funny story. They yes. then go to Mark's house. I think it's Mark's house or is it Barnabas? 
I thought it was Peter's, like mom's house, his mother-in-law. I may be completely wrong. Right. It's someone's details house. Details are fuzzy. In, in Jerusalem. Because the disciples are there <laughs> praying for Peter. Yes. All night. Because like, they think he's going to be dying. They think he's, he's going to be, be killed. Yeah. yeah. So then Peter goes and knocks on the door. The angel's like freed him from prison. The angel's not with him anymore. Right. And the, the little servant girl I can't remember comes her name, to the door. But. And she's so excited that Peter's there that she runs back. She doesn't even let him in. Yeah. And she says... Peter's here. And they're like, no, she, he, Peter's not here. You're seeing, maybe it was his angel. Angelos. Yes. Maybe it was his angel. Um, now there's an argument here that um, I think we'll link to. There's there's some people who argue that this is um, actually that a better way of translating this would have been, it's his ghost. It's his apparition. Yeah. Like it's yeah. his spirit. And that the people were saying that maybe it was... Um, Something like a crisis apparition where Peter's actually dead. Right. Yeah. The argument is that he's, he's been already been killed yeah. and his spirit comes as an angelos, yeah, which just, is a, a messenger. Yeah. One last time. and To inform uh, the, the disciples yeah. that it's over. Okay. So <laughs> I would like to draw a few threads together. Yeah. Make a little bit of a conclusion here and then get your thoughts. Um, so the first thing I think we need to say is that that's a definitely a debated reading. It does answer some problems or some questions about the text, like why didn't they invite the angel? If it was an angel, like an angel that was associated with guarding over Peter, why wouldn't they invite him in? That kind of stuff. So one of the things I think we can say from the two main things that we've pointed to in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water and the disciples' reaction to it. Mm-hmm. The only time the word ghost, ghost, ghost really appears. And it is an odd reaction it's if weird. you think about it. Yeah. And then that situation is that Along with the other ancient texts outside of the Bible, I I believe that it's pretty clear culturally that just like in our day, people, or at least a lot of people, believed in the idea of the human spirit being able to appear to people after death in some circumstances. Right. I think that's beyond dispute. Even apparently faithful Second Temple Jews. Yeah, even those Jewish people believed that that seemed to be a category right. that existed. Okay. I think that's indisputable. Yeah. Where I am going to go um, in a disagreement from that is that I actually think they were incorrect. Sure. I don't believe, I think they believe that. Even the disciples, I think, believe that. And I don't think they're correct. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the human spirit lingers after death I don't even think crisis apparitions are actually human spirits appearing to people. Mm -hmm. That's my conclusion. I know some people disagree, and there's like this weird short-term, like on their way, I guess, kind of like they appear for different reasons. Let me explain why I don't believe that that's the case. I believe, number one, I just hit my microphone. Sorry, guys. I believe that, number one, the example of Samuel, which I do believe is Samuel, is clearly in the text a very strange thing that's happening, like Balaam's donkey talking kind of strange. It's obviously an in, a, a providential intervention. <laughs> yes. I believe, number two, that the scriptures don't teach that the human spirit is able to appear like this to yeah. other people. So it's you have to, it's it's silent on that matter. And then I think what it does say positively would lead us to conclude that the human spirit after death is in Sheol or with the Lord. Yeah. In, in today and in, in the ancient times in one of the two compartments of Sheol. So I believe that's the case. And then I would even point at this crisis apparition story we told, and there are many others like it. And I, I think that what you're happening here isn't that people are always making this up. 
I think sometimes these events do happen. People mm-hmm. witness and experience these things. And this is a category where I would say is solidly demonic in that if you think about the example we gave, the man murdered himself. Mm-hmm. He commits suicide, yeah. which is self-murder. It's a violation of the command not to murder. And then he appears to this woman, but he's serene, he's peaceful, he's happy. A lot of these stories will underscore the idea, the lie, that death, that all death is an escape to heaven, that all death is an escape to a better place, which is one of the most dangerous lies that you can possibly believe. Right. Because that's not all death is an escape to heaven. It totally undermines <laughs> the, the truth. And so to me, it just, it ticks all of the boxes of a demonic deception where it's convincing people of a spiritual reality, but one that is nefarious right? and uh, teaches a false view of the real nature of the spiritual. Right. So it, 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 it's that classic, a lie is strengthened by a mixture of error mm-hmm. kind of thing, like you see in the last battle with the lie of the Callermans and the lie of the ape is that they mix in um, when when they find Puzzle the donkey dressed in the lion skin, then they realize that Puzzle the donkey, whom they've been parading as Aslan, is gone. Then they lie and they say, Aslan uh, uh, is not going to appear to you anymore. He's angry, but also there's he's so angry because there's been a donkey dressing up like Aslan. Yeah. And they strengthen the lie with the little bit of truth. They're the ones who dress the donkey right. in the lion skin. But now they're using that lie to make their their that that truth to make their lie cast iron right i think that's what i'm i'm that's in my opinion crisis apparition i like that i agree i think that when you because i was thinking like okay but again like what's the deception i I mean of course you have this example with the guy who killed himself is a very obvious one Mm -hmm. um but what about the ones like i heard one listener they they sent in a story and they said that their aunt or, you know, grandma, someone was telling them that one day when they were younger, uh, their, their father passed away Mm -hmm. and something that the father used to do when they were like really young, you know, like toddler ages, he would sneak into their room in the morning and did this to all the kids. And he would wake them up by like tugging on their toes, like pinching their toes, you know, like you do these weird rituals with your kids. Yeah. And and that would eventually wake them up. Yeah. And she was saying that her grandma said that that morning, she had felt, clearly felt Mm -hmm. someone pulling on her toes and it woke her up. Mm -hmm. And she was like, that's weird. That's exactly what my dad used to do. Yeah. And she, and then she found out later that day that her father was dead Mm -hmm. and she asked her brother about it because she was like, this is going to sound weird, Mm -hmm. but, and he said, oh no, the same thing happened to me where like that's, both happened to him that morning. They were Mm -hmm. in separate places completely, but they had this like memory almost of their toes being pulled on and it's this nice memory of their father and then yeah. they find out he's gone. All that to say, I would hear stories like that and think, okay, so where's the deception? Yeah, where's the deception there? Like, where's the deception? One answer could be, sometimes the Lord is very kind <clears throat> and he gives you gifts and and they seem completely trivial, but actually mm-hmm. they, they speak to people and they're very kind. Another thing would be, well, we don't know necessarily the long game mm-hmm. of the deception. Yeah. I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. where they just want to undermine the message that's clearly presented in scripture. Yeah. The other thing to note is that uh, in agreeing with you, scripture leaves no room 
for a third way to go after death. Right. It is either you are in Sheol now yeah. after Christ. You are either in Sheol or you are with Christ. Right. There's no lingering yeah. category that yeah. happens. Even the special cases of exception, with Samuel coming back with mm -hmm. the transfiguration, they don't linger. It's a quick providential, this happens, and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. And we have no reason to expect that anymore. Yep. And so the problem is that one of the deceptions that could happen when this gets undermined is purgatory. Mm -hmm. Like you could get a doctrine of purgatory that infects your theology yeah. that clearly wreaks havoc on it, yeah. as we saw in, in, in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And the reason, one of the reasons, as far as my understanding, reading the history, one of the reasons for the development of purgatory at all is so many people were having experiences like this yeah, where they were seeing ghosts or what they thought were ghosts that were like walking around in fields or in graveyards. They were having crisis mm -hmm. apparition experiences. They were telling the priests about it. Mm -hmm. All these things were happening. Then you also have the you know political side of indulgences and stuff. But And the Catholic Church was like, we actually have to develop an answer for this. Mm -hmm. But instead of saying, well, clearly it's a demonic deception, yeah. They went for the, maybe there's something in nature that we're not fully aware of, and it's this third category mm -hmm. of uh, spiritual location before you eventually go to either Sheol or yeah. Abraham's bosom or Christ. And I just don't think that's right. So I think that you can have experiences that in the moment actually seem relatively benevolent. Mm -hmm. And yet all it's trying to do is just undermine yeah. what's clearly taught in yeah. God's revelation to man. Whether subtly or overtly. Exactly. Yeah. And if it's undermined at all, it is successful. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it has to be openly uh, malicious all the time. Right. So yeah. all that to say, I agree with you. <laughs> Dude, Mike. Dude, it's so true. Just we just tried to dap, the but the table is really wide. The ta table's wide. But table's you guys wide. should hear, when we dap yeah. up good, good, it like echoes through the whole world. Dude. All right, guys. Well, we're going to shift gears here, and uh, I hope that that – again, overview stuff here. We're not just going to try to go deep on everything crisis apparition. Maybe we'll talk about that later as, as much, much as, we, as I would love to. As much as we, there, we might there, want There's to. one about an ocean liner trip across the Atlantic that I just – it's a great story. Yeah. There's so many I'm not going to tell you right now. There's some interesting ones, but what what we want to do now is turn to more of a residual type haunting, stone tape type theory, and to do that, we're going to go to one of the darkest periods in American history. Yeah, um, truly one of the most horrific series of years in our entire history as a nation, which is the Civil War. So, Ben, why don't you take us through Gettysburg and let's talk about some of these residual hauntings? Yes, let's. The American Civil War painted the states with the blood of her own from April 12, 1861 to May 26, 1865. As the war raged into the late summer of 1863, the Confederate Army, led by General Robert E. Lee, continued its grueling press into the Northern Territories. The famous Gettysburg Campaign that had begun two months earlier after Lee's victory at Chancellorsville. Little did the men on either side know just how pivotal the next handful of days would be for them, for their families, the war, and the entire history of the land they were marching over. In every war, there's some turning point that historians and lay people can point to as the point at which the tide swung in favor of the winning side. The Great War had Verdun. World War II had D-Day. 
The long conflict between Rome and Carthage in the Second Punic War had the Battle of Zama, where the general Hannibal was finally defeated by Scipio. But what would the American Civil War's Waterloo be? Perhaps some of the soldiers wondered this even as that moment approached them on the morning of July 1st, 1863. Finally, at the end of three days of all-out and almost desperate fighting from both sides of the conflict, the Confederate Army of Virginia began its retreat. Having suffered one last great loss of infantry due to well-timed artillery fire from the Union forces, the Southern Army was simply unable to continue. Lacking the reserves of men, ammunition, and nourishment necessary to continue against the larger Yankee force. As the Confederate soldiers wandered out of Gettysburg, exhausted and uncertain of what the future might now hold, then-President Abraham Lincoln sat in his office in Washington, pondering how best to capitalize on this great Union victory. The Battle of Gettysburg was the deadliest battle in the American Civil War, and accounts for the deadliest battle ever fought on American soil. Somewhere between 46,000 and 51,000 of the country's strongest, most competent, most promising, and most courageous young men were either killed, wounded to incapacity, or captured. For all intents and purposes, it was the theoretical end of the war. The southern states could no longer muster any real threat to the northern cause. A little less than two years later, after some objectively valiant but hopeless attempts from the Confederates to turn the tide back in their favor, Generals Lee and Grant sat in the Appomattox courthouse and signed a treaty agreement. The war was over, and the North ultimately had Gettysburg to thank for their coming out on top. And that's it, right? The war ends, the country changes completely overnight, and decades of civil unrest and tension ensues, even into our present day. But the war itself, at least, ended. If only that were true. There's a famous photograph that was taken of the battlefield just after the fighting had ceased. Shows a rolling hill of otherwise lovely green grass littered with the corpses of Union soldiers. Men who had just moments and hours before been filled with the vitality that comes from the fighting spirit. Fortunately for these men, they would all be buried in the Gettysburg National Cemetery, or at least most of them would. But the same cannot be said for many or most of the Confederate soldiers, and many people believe that these soldiers left to rot into the soil they bled and died for might still cry out for help in the night. Gettysburg remains one of the most allegedly haunted places in the world. What follows are just a few of the haunting tales that creep up from the annals of time after the deadly encounter there. On the battlefield itself, which is now a living museum called the Gettysburg National Military Park, Hundreds have reported seeing shades and apparitions of the fallen soldiers roaming through the cannons and stepping over the fences on foggy mornings, armed with rifle and bayonet and trotting along, as if following some order from an undead officer that is also stuck there with him. In the heat of battle, it seems, the men failed to notice that they died. In their confusion, they continue the fight as a ghastly memory. One particular part of the battlefield is a rock formation of huge boulders called Devil's Den. It got the name for being home to a legend that a massive serpent, some 15 feet long, lived within the cave at its center and would devour any who ventured too close. Nowadays, the name fits for different reasons. People report hearing the beating of war drums and distant sounds of gunshots peppering around them, even in the clear light of day. Others have said they encountered a withered old man dressed in shabby clothing. No matter the elements, he's always barefoot. They say he will approach a party and attempt to give directions to some unknown and difficult to understand place. 
Some had said that he has even held their hand. There's an old wooden bridge, Sax Bridge, spanning the Marsh Creek close to the battlefield. Legend has it, three Confederate soldiers attempt to abandon their posts by fleeing over the bridge when they come to terms with how hopeless the battle has become. Unfortunately, whether it was a Confederate officer enforcing justice for their disloyalty or some Union Jacks just doing what they saw as right, the three men were killed as they ran through the covered bridge. Visitors have claimed to see the clear silhouettes of three men walking through the bridge with rifles and packs if they look in at just the right time of day. As you were reading that, yeah. I had uh, a thought. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying that I think this is true, but it's probably worth exploring. Because uh-huh. I was thinking like, okay, this di- this clearly differs categorically from the other hauntings we've talked about. Uh-huh. Because it's some massive like national tragedy, an epic tragedy. Yeah. And it seems like there's some shared memory within the land or yeah. within the people that are there. And I, I, I think it's worth mentioning that it may not be completely out of the realm of possibility for something like this to be uh, more true. And the reason for that is, uh, is not what I'm about to say, but what I'm going to say after it. Okay. I, I was okay. thinking of uh, Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Yeah. And how you have actually like men like Bavink address that uh-huh. and say that no, Jung was actually onto something there uh, because we we clearly have motifs of thought mm-hmm. that are peppered throughout the ancient world, and they all had to have some origination, and and there are different ways to explain that. But one of the potential ways to explain it is a view of the propagation of the of the soul. Mm-hmm. So when you ask yourself how a, a man's soul is created. Mm-hmm. There are two predominant views. Right. There's creationism mm-hmm. and then this other one called traducianism. Creationism is the more popular one, yeah. which says that at the moment of conception, a new soul is made by God. And God creates the soul. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, and the traducianism agrees that of course God creates the soul, but it says that it's actually created in the new human a little bit differently, mm-hmm. where the where at conception, this new person inherits pieces of their parents' soul. Uh, Luther held to this view. Calvin, uh, he waffled back and forth. Augustine also waffled back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so the way, and the the reason that that view even became a thing Mm -hmm. is because the theologians were observing nature and they were saying like, why is it that that boy right there, he walks just like his grandfather, but he never met his grandfather. But people would say like, I swear you walk just like your granddad, mm-hmm. or you, you know, lounge in a chair and you, and you prop your feet up and put your hands on your chest crossed. And no one ever taught you to do that, but your grandfather always did that. Like, why do you do that? Mm-hmm. And the kid would just say like, oh, well, this is just how I've always done it. This is mm-hmm. how I know to do it. And so anyway, the idea is that traducianism can answer that because you actually do inherit some kind of memory of the habits of your forefathers in the form of your soul being created. Where I'm going with that is, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. I know. That wasn't very interesting. Sorry. The traducianist case <laughs> for the stone tape theory of hauntings <laughs> well, with Ben Gary. Well, where I'm going with is like, what if you do have some kind of national memory of some big tragedy where it almost is as if when you're in the setting and the and the weather is just like it was on that day, you almost can like hear the gunshots, you know, like. Uh, the the theater on which it happened is so, you know, mirrored and and the uh, and the event was such a massive and epic event that it's almost like I it's almost like I can hear 
these things happening or something like that. And it's because of traducianism. Again, I do not believe that that is true. I want, I can't emphasize that enough. I don't even know that it follows. <laughs> I know. I mean, it but seems, if you have, if, if but you, you know what though? But it would explain why some people see it and so some creative. people don't because, <laughs> <laughs> no, it would explain why some see it and some don't because if there is any like actual mm. kinship, yeah, uh-huh. then your soul would <laughs> remember. I, I'm, I'm not, I am laughing because I thought about like a kid who draws something. He's like, it's an elephant. And your parent says, that was so creative of you. <laughs> it means it doesn't look like an elephant We are not going to put it on the fridge. <laughs> wow. It's like like these these theological giants. It's uh, like the horse. Yeah. The, the horse head is beautiful. And then it gets like to a two-year-old who's right-handed <laughs> drew it with his left hand at the back. Yes. And uh, it's like Augustine is coming up with this view of traditionism. And then like some podunk deacon <laughs> with, a, with a ghost podcast takes it to the who's, Battle of Gettysburg. so hungry because we've been recording for like eight years at this point. Anyway. That I can't even remember a time before we started recording this episode. I think that people are going to be like, wow, Ben's really onto something. And I have to say, I disagree. <laughs> but okay. it was worth saying. I'm not even a Traducian, so it's okay. That's fine. I think it's possible. I think I, it's I think it's an area where you, we don't know. I don't know what I am. Where it could be either. Like it, it could could be. I don't think there's a reason to say either one is the scripture. Must be false. The scripture speaks like both are true. Yeah, it, it says things that could make you go. Oh, yeah, yeah, that could yeah go. could be attributed mm-hmm. to both. So <laughs> anyway, very interesting. The stone tape theory overall, um, man, I this is another one where I get the powerful draw of that sounding totally reasonable. Right. You know what I mean? Like that powerful emotions. We know that the land is affected by the actions. Yeah, that it could have a powerful effect on. So this is one where I'm like, I totally get it. I get why that sounds so good. It's just that I don't have a good reason to say that that is not just like other hauntings type phenomena. Right. A deception of some... Again, I actually... I almost never hear of phenomena and think everyone made it all up. I, mean, I almost right? never hear I, that. I rarely... Like, maybe that's almost, bad. Yeah. <laughs> it could, but if anything, I think, could this be a, a situation where um, the deceptive spiritual world is giving you what you expect? Is it serving up to you what you think should be reasonable to, again, just subtly paint a different view of the spiritual world and of the realities of life and death than what the scriptures present. It's just, the scriptures just don't speak to this kind of thing. Yeah, they, like, it doesn't speak to the question of, could, is is psychic energy of or emotional energy of people? That's a real thing, first of all. I mean, it actually is a thing. I mean, it kind of, it, it doesn't, obviously, mm-hmm. explicitly. But when I am reading, like, really the Pentateuch, mm-hmm. and Leviticus and Deuteronomy especially, there is sort of a donagality of uh-huh. those of those books, which says that because of the sins of the Amorites and because mm-hmm. of the blood that the that the earth has drank there, it's yeah. spitting them out. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like that's a clear reason for the the incredibly high standard of holiness mm-hmm. that God puts into the into the Levitical law. Yeah, where 
because of the place where they're going, mm -hmm. the history of the people that have been there, there is such a massive proclivity to slip on the slope back into yeah. the law of Canaan. And so, of course, not only is God holy, and so mm -hmm. his people must be holy, yeah. but of course his law has to be incredibly holy yeah. because otherwise his people will quickly slip back into the depraved ways mm -hmm. of, of the people that were there before yeah. them. Maybe that's reading too much into it. Well, and there is such thing as desecrating. There is such thing as sa sacral desecration of a place or a thing or an altar where it, Israel was expected to go in and take the high places and the altars where these horrible, where the blood had drunk uh, or the, the ground had drunk the blood of human sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. And where cities had been founded, where kings would sacrifice their infant children in the and put their bodies in the gates Into or the, the foundation gates. of a city to strengthen it as an offering to their demon gods. And Israel was to go in and utterly, utterly wipe those things out and desecrate and even sacredly desecrate the altars yeah. intentionally. Like, so there is something that's true about the nature of death and sin and evil that it leaves a mark. Yeah. It leaves a mark and it, it does matter. I think this is one of those, like when it comes to the stone tape thing, I tend to think um, if there's anything to it that's related to like stone tape theory, again, I actually don't think stone tape's true. But if there were, I think biblically we could say certainly that it's not actually the spirit of that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're I, not actually yeah, there. Yeah, no, I, we've established that already. Yeah. In no in no yeah. case is it the spirit of the dead human. It's just not. It just isn't. So I tend to think that where it's real, it's possibly um, some kind of spiritual deception or it's some kind of but, – but I think there's at least a category where we go, I don't know. That's just really – I think the, or the, the answer is I don't know but I don't think that it's not happening. Like, I don't think that everyone is making this up. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, some people are. Some people want to go and see something. Some people want to go and mm -hmm. feel or hear something. Yeah. That's, of course. But then there's also accounts where you're like, yeah, I just, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I just don't think that you're lying. I think that you believe mm -hmm. that you saw something and you probably did. Yeah. And the ditch to avoid would be... Uh, to look at the fact that we don't really have a clean category for that. Mm -hmm. And then to start entertaining ideas like, oh, well, so maybe it's a glitch in the simulation. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a computer program by a mm -hmm. sixth grader in some alternate yeah. universe. That, no, it's not that. Yeah. It's certainly not mm -hmm. that. The thing is, no one has a good answer for that kind of category. Mm -hmm. um, but it, 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 it's, a, I think, at least worth entertaining some potential answers that could start to get you there, but you have to hold them really loosely yeah. because you're from Jump Street with something like this, yeah. speculating wildly. You know, um, we probably need to go into the canon if we're really to answer this um, and and talk about the Lord of the Rings. Ugh. When they're passing through Holland, you know, Holland? Yeah. I think is what it's called. Is that the- Is it uh, Holland? Let me look it up. When, when Legolas is hearing the stones and they're passing through this region. Um, is it in the plains of Rohan? Like what? It's Holland. Yeah, it's called Holland. So they're passing from Rivendell in the first stage of oh, their journey. okay. The, the fellowship. And this is earlier on than I was thinking. The <laughs> elves once dwelt in this place called Holland and they're passing through it. And, and uh, Legolas says he... I think he says like deep they um, delved us, fair they wrought us. The stones mm. are speaking because they've had 
the elves are like this supernatural people, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're this mm-hmm. immortal, the fair ones. Like they they rot the and so the the land has a memory of them. Yeah. Okay. So so this is clearly an, a, an idea that's attractive to us. It ends up in our lore. It ends up in our fiction. It ends up where we think of like a land remembering. But then I think in the scriptures, there, there is such place. There is such thing as a place where the land itself, yeah, is cursed or where or blessed um, even or blessed or when um, the blood of your brother cries out from the earth that yeah. drank it up to Cain. Um, like we again, we so quickly dismiss like this whole other reality of the sacred and the immaterial interacting with the material world. The way I think about it is that, you know, generally I think Christians think about these two worlds as if they are two parts or compartments that are basically sealed off. They might touch somewhere. It's dualism. Yeah, like a two-story house kind of thing. What I think about, what I think would be a, a more apt metaphor would be it's like a tapestry where the the spiritual and the material are woven together in ways that you can't tug on the one without tugging on the other. You couldn't pull all of the threads out of the mm-hmm. spiritual without completely changing the material as well. It, they're, they're, they're woven together in that way. So again, I'm not saying therefore residual stone tape hauntings of the Civil War battles are that. You're right. Um, but I am saying there's at least a category for this where the, the the stones, the land, the earth, the material remembers and has interface with, and is there's commerce. Yeah. So a lot of the, I mean, Lewis did this too, but oh yeah, uh, my understanding of Lewis's and Tolkien's uh, view of reality, mm-hmm. and, and it's derived from a lot of Scandinavian myth in this regard, mm-hmm is the river daughter, the old man willow type trope Mm -hmm. where they did see the natural geography as governed by an intelligence. But they said that that intelligence was in the fairy category. Mm -hmm. So you could have a good river uh-huh. <laughs> or you could have a bad river. Yeah, some of the rivers went over to the evil one. Exactly. I mean, Tolkien, Tolkien did with the trees. Some of the trees are bad. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. And, and so they had this category and clearly the... Yeah, it's fiction, but the fiction is an extension of what you already believe is mm-hmm. true, just repackaged. And so yeah. I, I am compelled by that idea. Like mm-hmm. there, maybe there is some sort of intelligence over uh, different geographies that are set to govern them. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. You don't, you know, you shouldn't be married to that yeah. idea. And and perhaps there can be such a desecration like what you're saying, such a a, a, a sacral desecration that that elemental spirit is now like, tainted or corrupted or it latches yeah. on to that and not the victory that came later. And, right. Um, I think that that's possible. Yeah. And then there's also just the element of the, the very human and impossible to deny element to me of when you go to a place with a storied past, mm-hmm. you do sense a weightiness. Yeah. You and a reverence. And part when, of when it, you go into, I, I got the chance to go into the Vatican yeah, and go to St. Peter's Basilica. And when you walk into that, it's not just the fact that it's beautiful and it's ornate and, and yeah. it is all those things. It's also just like the the history that's taken place in this building yeah. is difficult to describe, but yeah. you do feel a weightiness mm-hmm. when you go in or the Pantheon is the same. You go into the Pantheon. Yeah. Yeah. You feel the weight of the centuries pressing in on you. And, and the reality is we are transcendent. We are sphere, physical, spiritual beings. And so we do, our soul has commerce with God. Hi there, faithful listener. 
If you've been enjoying the Haunted Cosmos podcast and you'd like to see Ben and I live, then come and meet us in person at the Right Response Ministries Conference, happening March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title of the conference is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. Some of our other speakers include Doug Wilson, Joe Boot, and the host of the conference, our friend Joel Webin. Yes, the whole conference is going to be really awesome. But the best part to me is that Brian and I will be on stage with Joel talking about the most unhinged things imaginable. Plus, by coming to the conference, it'll give us a chance to meet each of you in person. You can register for the conference by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. And don't forget to use the promo code HAUNTED to get 20% off of registration exclusively for our listeners. Lastly, if you're looking for another fantastic podcast, you got to check out Joel's podcast called Theology Applied. It's on Apple and Spotify, but you can also watch Theology Applied by searching Right Response Ministries on YouTube. Check the links in the description. Brian, you know how sometimes you wake up in the morning? Uh, yeah, hopefully everybody does that. Well, sure, maybe. But do you ever feel tired when you wake up? Well, yeah, Ben, I used to all the time, but then I, I started drinking this new drink. Uh, it's actually called coffee, and it helps you wake up. No way. There's a drink that does that? Man, I should give it a shot. You definitely need to try this. And when you do, you should buy your coffee from Squirrely Joe's Coffee. They're a thoroughly Christian company who sends you a great coffee at an affordable price. Plus, they even donate some of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad, helping the effort to end child trafficking. Okay, wait. I actually have heard of Squirrely Joe's Coffee, and they are really great. They make it super easy to order exactly what you want. If you go to www.squirrelyjoes.com, that's www.squirrelyjoes.com and click shop coffee. And first time buyers can sign up to receive 20% off of their first order. Just go to www.squirrelyjoes.com or use the link in the description below. Squirrely Joes Coffee, share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> in a sense, we we look to the great cloud of witnesses and their example, and we know that they are looking on, that the the that we're uh, living on a stage, and it's a stage that is just we're one act in this great play of history that God is writing. So there's a weightiness there. There's a you think about. I mean, man, the Civil War was just fratricide, massive mass fratricide. Yeah brother killing brother and a horror. I mean, horror is beyond comprehension if you haven't experienced that kind of um, combat or, I mean, just absolute horror. Right. So this is the only, like, this is one of the only, um, I don't know, supernatural, like haunting-ish stuff that I, I back away and I go, I honestly. I really don't know. Uh, if at, I, if at the end of, when we see as we is you know as we're seen and we know fully and we look back if god was like yeah when the canaanites desecrated it became a a, a haunt of jackals and yeah. shades that, that there was a spiritual element there that it was genuinely in a spiritual way desecrated right. that when you go to gettysburg and there was this blood spilled unnecessary crazy intense human suffering whole families and sons and husbands and um just being plucked up before their time in blood, you know, the, the ground has drunk gallons of blood. Mm -hmm. 
that that that, that had an effect. And I honestly, I don't know. And then and then I mean, I'm not going down and like in my systematic yeah, theology. I know. I'm, I'm gonna be I'm like not, here. Yeah, this like, is, yeah. <laughs> but it is an idea that when you think about it, you go. But the world really is a place where there's where the material is touched. Yeah, by like the spiritual. It's the the God who made uh, the God who made creation is the same God of recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they don't just walk side by side of one another. They are I, I've described it as salt that's dissolved in a bucket of water, mm-hmm. where both are now fundamentally uh, a piece of of each other. Yeah. yeah, like you said, you can't tug on the one thread without pulling the mm-hmm. other. But. Yeah. We should move on. We should move on because <laughs> we have two more stories and we it says a buck fifty two on our board, even though we paused and we had a couple things, but it's like we're deep. Yeah, we're we're, we're very we're deep. deep here. What we need to move on to haunted, we got two other types. Yes. Haunted house and then haunted objects. So. so I'm I'm gonna walk into the story here of the haunted limp mansion. Yeah. L E M P L E M P mansion. Yes. In eighteen thirty eight, an ambitious and optimistic young man named Johann Limp traveled across the ocean from Germany to America. He was not interested in the industry of the coastlands of this thriving country, though. Instead, he knew exactly what he wanted, and what he wanted was a landlocked life in industry in the budding Midwestern states. Johann arrived in St. Louis, Missouri some weeks after his initial landing in New York City and began his work in earnest. One thing that every German could bring to the table of this region, one thing that Johann knew everyone else would appreciate, was a solid brew of beer. So. He opened up a small grocery store right in the middle of downtown St. Louis, where he sold normal household items, canned food, produce, and his prized home brew recipe of golden German lager. This lighter beer immediately became a great success in the town, since the market had up to that point been saturated by much darker and stronger beers. In fact, the home brew became so popular and profitable that just two years after arriving in St. Louis, Johann would shut the doors of his grocery store and instead focus all of his attention on brewing. Thus began the limp beer empire that would rule over much of the Midwest for many decades to come. Unfortunately, with the great success of the brewery came a host of family issues and tragedies that would prove to haunt the family's heritage and reputation even up to the present day. Eventually, the patriarch of the Limp line in America passed away, but it was only after he had built the Limp Brewery into a highly respected institution in St. Louis. By the 1860s, when Johann actually died, his brewery was one of the largest breweries in the city, and he was a millionaire. After the time of mourning had passed, Johann's son William seamlessly stepped into the role of sole leader of the Limp Empire. He had learned from the best, his father, and so his business acumen's foundation was better than any of the schooling in the world. He proved himself to be an even better leader of the company than his father had been, which yielded greener and greener pastures for the Limp family, the brewery and her employees, and even all of St. Louis in general. William significantly expanded the brewery until it covered five city blocks. He excavated the ground beneath the expanded plant to achieve better storage and brewing standards for the prized lager. Because of his faithfulness in carrying out his father's vision in St. Louis, the limp name eventually became synonymous with influence, wealth, and integrity in business. The limp brewery was finally at the very peak of the St. Louis beer market, and they would stay there until prohibition hit in the 1920s. In the midst of all the great expansion projects and growing of the business undertaken by William, His father-in-law, Jacob Feichert, 
had begun an ambitious project of his own just down the street from the sprawling brewery. Feichert built a beautiful Victorian house in which he and his wife could dwell close to their grandkids and live out their days in comfort and luxury. As they indeed grew exceedingly old, William Limp stepped in and purchased the home from his father-in-law, seeing it as a place where his family could also thrive in peace. He renovated and expanded the home to better suit the modern designs. By the end of his work, the mansion had 33 rooms and contained an entire servant's quarters in the attic that was quite spacious and accommodating. He even went the extra mile of digging through the ground beneath the mansion to create a system of tunnels that led straight to the brewery's main facility. Now he could pass to and from work and home with ease and speed, since he wouldn't be stopped on the street, unless he just wanted to see people on some days. By William's count, he had done right by his family and by his father's legacy. He was confident that old Johann would be proud of his boy. As time wore on, the success continued to compound on itself. Limp expanded operations even more. He hired more workers and closed greater and greater deals. He saw the great hosting potential that his home and underground tunnels afforded him and actually decided to expand that underground room of the mansion to create a theater and a swimming pool for his family and friends to enjoy away from the busy sounds and smells of the city that lie just above them. All of this is just to wax poetic on one simple point about the Limp's family life. It was good. But tragedy is something we all must face. And whatever tragedy may have been lacking in these golden years of the Lemp Empire would certainly be made up for later on. In 1901, William's oldest and apparently favorite son suddenly passed away from heart failure at the age of just 28. William was never the same. He grew paranoid and nervous. He became a recluse who seemed to loathe the idea of public interaction more and more each day. He became an image of joviality fallen into melancholy and sorrow. In 1904, William's best friend and close business associate, Frederick Pabst, also died. The weight of sadness was too much for the aging beer tycoon to bear. So as he sat in his office on February 13, 1904, William Lemp shot himself in the head with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. A shot heard round an entire family line, it now seems. Soon after the suicide of his father, and just three years after the sudden death of his brother, William Jr. took command of the Lemp Brewery as her third president. Unlike his fathers before him, though, Jr. was not as concerned with how he might set his progeny ahead in St. Louis, instead focusing on how he might just give himself a decent time in his life. With inheriting the job of running the great brewery also came the added benefit of an absolute fortune of personal wealth. Jr. was quick to spend this money on whatever he or his new wife Lillian fancied for themselves or for their little boy, William III. Problem is, man is not so good at self-control most of the time. That which you idolize becomes that which you give more and more of yourself to, even in ways you could hardly imagine doing when the idolatry begins. William Jr. soon learned just how true of a thing this is. As time wore on and the affluent excesses of life lost their appeal and excitement, Junior craved more and more new things to satisfy him. He grew tired of his wife and gave her $1,000 a day to spend on whatever she liked. He hoped this would keep her busy and away from his newfangled and nefarious plans. It worked. Junior began throwing parties every single night in the hollowed out caves beneath his family's mansion. All manner of debauchery and gluttony was engaged in here. Dozens of ladies of the night were hired to attend the parties and provide entertainment for Junior and his friends. Beer flowed freely, 
the swimming pool was open to all, and a bowling alley was installed for added Bond villain effects. As Junior descended further and further into depravity and infidelity, the consequences began to catch up to him. He sired an illegitimate son with one of his ladies. Now, it must be admitted that we have no records of this boy's existence today, but that's not because he didn't exist. Rather, it's because later on, for reasons that will be clear later on, most of the family's historical and contemporary records were destroyed in order to save face for everyone. In the case of this lad, testimony from dozens of witnesses confirmed that he existed and that his life is one truly marked by tragic neglect. Born with Down syndrome, the boy was not only a reminder to Junior of his own sin, but was also an embarrassment to this callous-natured man so obsessed with his own image. To get back at the child for existing and to try and run away from his own evil, he locked the child away in the Lemp Mansion's attic for his entire life. After a divorce from his wife Lillian, who took custody of her son William III, and the horrible turn of business that came about with the prohibition, Junior was nearing the end of his rope. As he worked through liquidation paperwork for many of the brewery's assets, he received the news of yet another tragedy. His sister, Elsa Limp, had just been found dead in her house from a self-inflicted gunshot to the head, just like her father. With a mountain of doom looming over him, Junior slipped into a melancholy very similar to his father's before him. He became a nervous wreck. He hated to be around others. He was paranoid about everything. He despaired of life itself, and so he ended it. In that same mansion where his father had done it all those years before, Junior placed the 38 caliber gun to his temple while sitting in his desk chair and pulled the trigger with no hesitation. He was interred in the family's own crypt at the Bellefontaine Cemetery. With the business limping along and the family in shambles, more bad news soon came. William III had died of a heart attack at age 42. Junior's brother, Charles, was the only one willing to come to see to the mansion and to Junior's illegitimate son, still kept in the home's attic, by the way. But soon after his arrival to the estate, the poor boy would also pass away in that attic, the place in the world he knew best. Shortly after this event, Charles too would take his own life with the help of a 38 caliber revolver, but not before he also shot his dog in the basement. When they found Charles, they also discovered the dog, Though shot in the basement, the dog had finally succumbed to his wounds somewhere on the stairwell, halfway up to Charles's bedroom. Charles would be the last limp to reside in that mansion. By 1970, the entire limp name would be erased from the world with the death of Junior's last surviving brother, Edwin. The mansion sold and renovated into a boarding house for downtown St. Louis. But nearly as soon as tenants filled the mansion's halls with life once more, her tales of haunting and ghostly presences began to circulate. Knocks from nobody at the door, clear footsteps running up the stairs, shadowy apparitions seen at the end of the halls, voices echoing through the rooms, and people's goods or workers' tools going missing only to be found in the oddest of places with nobody confessing to the theft began to frequently plague any who stayed or worked in the cursed building. And even though the mansion has now passed from boarding house to a modern-day banquet hall, it appears that the hauntings have never once slowed down. The main stairway where Charles's dog was found, the gates that lead into the debaucherous tunnels in the basement under the home, and the attic where the Downs boy was held captive his whole life are said to be the hotbeds of these terrors. Guests who stay in William Sr.'s old bedroom 
the one in which he died. Report being woken up in the night to the sound of someone kicking down their door violently. When they run and swing the door open to see what's happening, nobody's there. But it is said that on the night that William Sr. died, his son Jr. ran up the stairs and began kicking at his father's door when he heard the gunshot. Guests and investigators often place toys in the attic surrounded by a thick ring of fine sand dumped on the floor all around them. They'll come back the next day to find that many of the toys have been moved to other rooms, even other stories of the mansion, but the sand is undisturbed. And if you look up at the mansion from the street on a dark night, you just might see the large face of the neglected boy peeking out of the window from behind the curtain, longing to escape even just one time into the fresh air. Man, that is a very sad story. What a depressing story. Honestly. I mean, just huge, just absolute sin. I just threw a huge downer into the whole thing. That was so. like, I was, when he shot the dog. I know. I was like, and the boy. And the dog, oh. like, the dog limping its way back up yeah, that to is find. Just, that is just And horrible. the fact that it was like, how many of them killed themselves? Four? So it was, it was William uh-huh. Sr., William Jr., Jr.'s sister, and Charles, the brother. Yeah, so four of them in in two generations. Unbelievable. In the same way, most of them in the same house. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the little boy up oh, in the attic. That's that, horrible. So there's this story uh, of someone who visited the mansion yeah. and they paid to like stay there by themselves overnight. Yeah. So they were exploring the whole thing. And they say that like they felt really weird and they did hear a lot of weird things mm-hmm. and see some things. But one of the things that really got me was they went up into the attic mm-hmm. And they were they were doing something no one should ever do, which mm-hmm. is asking uh, guys, don't stop doing that. Stop ghost hunting. Stop ghost hunting in general. Stop it. But if you're gonna do it, cut it out. Especially stop inviting. If you're gonna activity. do it, first step, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Second step. You know what? Yeah. If you're gonna do stop. it, repent and go home. Yeah, repent and go to church. <laughs> like, so call true. your pastor. If you, and you probably don't have one, but if you do, call him up. But and tell him. Forgive me, I've sinned. I am looking for the demons. If you don't have a pastor, get a good pastor. Get a pastor. But uh, but, but one of the things that they claim happened is uh, is that they were up there in the room. They were asking to communicate. You know, like, if anyone's here, if this boy's here, can you make yourself known? Uh-huh. And a, and the the story is that as they said that, this little orange balloon drifted okay. across the All right. across the room and like, and I'm like, oh, okay, okay. go home, go home uh, again. Stay That's home. <laughs> all you need to see. Go home, stay home. Stop. And stop. Here, here's what I think, Ben. I think that the way that flies and maggots and corruption is drawn to rotting and uh, meat yes. and death, that demons and the shades and the unclean spirits are drawn to human suffering and sin. And, and so I think they come and they give you what you want. Yeah. I, I think they come and they give the people what they're looking for. Right. Which is a lie, but it's ultimately a lie that's often built on the corruption of sin that really is true. You know what? This is actually pretty apropos for our show in general. And today on All Hallows Eve, when we're recording this, that people are drawn to the dark, the tension, the mm-hmm. the frightening. And part of that is, I think, fine and, mm-hmm. and can be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's that you're appreciating the the depth of story that God has woven into history. Yeah. But sin corrupts everything. Yeah. And so clearly there's this corrupt vein in all in everyone, I think. Yeah. This is why the horror franchise is so popular. 
where they just want to glory in the melancholy, yeah. the depressing, and then also the depraved and, and the horrifying. Yeah. So of course, of course, the you know the spiritual forces can see what happens in places as mm-hmm. far as they can, which we don't know how yeah. far they can, but but they can. And so why would they not want to go to a place that's been the theater of such yeah. horrible things? And yeah, like you're saying, give the people what they And then want. indulge the people who are seeking after the demonic, even if they don't know it. Um, they indulge them by giving them, uh, wearing a false face of a deceased person or a spirit. I'm on the spirit of this dead lamp brother. No, yeah. you're a demon. Right. You're an unclean spirit and you're trying to deceive people, but you glory in death. And so it's almost like they can't help themselves. Yeah. But go and glory and keep the glory, the in glory alive. Right. They they keep, you know, welcoming it there. There's there's yeah. another story. Uh this just goes to show how how twisted this desire can be in mm-hmm. people where uh you can rent William Jr.'s room mm-hmm. and you can stay there overnight, you know. And uh and he had the first freestanding shower in St. Louis. What? Very exciting, yeah. Wow. The first ever freestanding shower in St. And so these women that's still working, they will go in and take a shower and they will claim to have a peeping tom come into the bathroom and and peep on them while they're showering. And the story is that William Jr. used to do that all the time where he would let guests use his bathroom and he had a key what to a it. What a creepy man. What a, a foolish son. What a foolish son who ruined the the otherwise great it, inheritance it, of his Because there was the junior, and the, but Junior's dad had killed himself too. So, yeah, yeah. Junior's dad, he- But he genuinely had some tragedy. He got depressed because his son died mm-hmm. and his best friend died. And he was also old already. Mm-hmm. And he like seemed to spiral out of control mm-hmm. and ended up killing yeah. himself. Wicked, but And then, then Junior was like the completely selfish, self-absorbed yeah. prick- Classic trust fund kid. Illegitimate kid mm-hmm. who he hated, um, divorced his wife because yeah. he was tired of her. Oh, yeah. Just horrible man. The, the the initial patriarch of the family seemed like a godly man. I don't know if he's yeah. a Christian. I, I don't know, but at that time, probably. At least, humanly speaking, he was an honorable man. Yeah. Um, but then it just shows you how wealth and how um, these things divorced from the glory of God can actually just bring death and corruption. And they can actually just amplify. It's a testament to generational sin, um, you know, where your father makes this huge mistake at the end of his life Mm -hmm. and it seems to plague his children. Yeah. And then the importance of catechizing your children because, you know, good men make good times um, and and good times make bad men. Yeah. And then bad men make bad times. Yeah, yeah. so anyway, we should we should this episode's gone on long enough. Yeah, let's wrap it up here. And this last <laughs> category, that was more of a where a place is seems to have activity that's not just like a repet, repetitive thing, but actually active yeah. activity that we would ascribe the many cases of this. We'll look at some more in depth in future seasons, Lord willing, of the show. And like and, linked more to a family history yeah. than it is the history of the place itself. Yeah. Seems to be the glorying and death of yeah. the unclean spirits. This last category is talismanic. It's the seemingly possessed object. Yeah. And this is one of those, um, This is the, the human mind or something about us that's drawn powerfully to the idea of magical powers imbued in an object right or in a, a, I use the word talismanic that that we would we have a, a this is a human instinct where we want to take the living god who is spirit and we want to try and force him into a thing mm-hmm. that then rather than by faith where we're looking to god 
we can we can basically say, no, I put my God into this little thing, and then this little thing will protect me. Right. So, so I don't need the faith anymore. I've got the talisman. Right. I've got the I've got the thing that's going to give me prosperity in my business. I've got the necklace I can wear. I've got the Saint whatever's jewelry that's going to help me find things. I I've got, got the, the yeah. The, there's so many relics. That, that, so that many examples. <laughs> Of this, I'm um, like you. You have an example here in the notes of the beekeepers. Yeah. So in the in the medieval time, uh, there was very there's very little record of any black magic, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of white magic. Right. That the medievals in, were and using. Ben just used scare quotes. Yeah, if I you're did not square YouTubing. We don't actually think white magic is a thing that yeah, you should do. I don't think you should go and do what I'm about to describe. <laughs> but these Christian medievals uh, would develop charms mm-hmm. to help in their everyday life. So. Yeah. One, one example is the swarming of the bees and they would speak. It, it wasn't quite the same because it's not necessarily an object, but they would speak this charm. Mm-hmm. And the way that they would do it is they would, they would, so beekeepers, if their hives were being unruly, yeah. they would take dirt, they would throw it over their hive mm-hmm. and then they would speak this charm. It's like an incantation. It's an incantation. Yeah. And, and then they would throw more dirt or something and, yeah. and it would calm the bees. And apparently it worked enough for a lot of people to do it. And then there was another one where uh, farmers would carry around um, amulets that they had blessed. Yeah. And they would drop dirt that they had blessed at the corners of their property yeah. to protect the property from pests and from blight yeah. and things like that. Other people would wear amulets to to ward off danger, uh, even just personal danger. Yeah. And then you see this, of course, with like the hobgoblin idea yeah. where they would protect their house mm-hmm. from demonic forces by, you know, putting a, a turnip that was carved <laughs> out yeah. on the doorstep, and that's where we get the jack o' lantern. Yeah, um, the Irish did that. Yeah, so. at least that's one. That's one of that's the, one of the origin stories. One of the origin stories for. Uh, <laughs> but the negative, the, yeah. a, a negative example of this would be um, the Icelandic witches that would carve runes mm-hmm. into rock, and the runes were an incantation to Odin, for example. Yeah, yeah. and they would cut themselves yep. and pour blood over the runes. And speak the words, and now yeah. that monument had power in itself. Yeah, um, that was lasting. Yeah, and some, you know, we have examples in Scripture of uh, Jacob setting up a pillar or an altar mm-hmm. at Bethel mm-hmm. and saying, like, "This is the house, the, the yeah. house, the gate of heaven, the house of God." Yeah, a memorial, right? To and remember, it, and it's and, a memorial. Yeah. It's not in itself right. now imbued with divine power. You, you think about <laughs> you think about what Israel did at Sinai when. Um, the the people rose up to play and they were they they made this golden calf and they were basically saying this is the god who brought you out of Egypt right um, they were making an idol that was supposed to be the god and the idol is often a place where their god would partially or lend his power or come and dwell in in their home or they would have these altars the human mind loves to do this yes human beings when we fall when we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of this God who has an absolute creature-creator distinction, where he is other. He is other from the from the material world. And what we want to do is we fall short and we lower his glory onto a physical object that's then convenient for us to direct our worship or channel our worship through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this anciently in the, uh, uh, the world of idols. You also see this in silly things like, I literally went to a church once. Church, I'll use this loosely. <laughs> Uh, I had a church planting mentor back a long time ago when I was intending to plant a church, ended up not doing that, but actually pastoring the church, this man pastored. But we went out to Park City, Utah, uh, kind of seeing the ground there, needed a good church. Yeah. And so I was like, let's check it out, see if it's a place where maybe I could plant. And um, what a beautiful place to plant. Beautiful a place. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
went to this church and they were telling me, the pastor was telling me about how they had bought this crystal, this crystal that during their Sunday services would take their worship and it would amplify it and it would shoot it up to this star or this uh, constellation to Orion, or it would it would send it up into the cloud and it would amplify the potency of their worship. And it sounds made up, it's so dumb. I mean, but this is like, the human instinct is to lower our worship onto physical things that we imbue with spiritual power. And the, the prophet Amos would like a word with, <laughs> right. with <laughs> Okay. Now now see how a demonic deceiver would want to come in and take that instinct and amplify it right. and turn it up to 10 and haunt objects or give talismanic powers or supernatural events surrounding objects to just reinforce this fallen short of glory, lowered worship instinct of human right. beings onto the relic and onto the the physical, um, you know, what's it called? Repository of spiritual power. That's not what I thought you were going to <laughs> Repository was the word I was And there's, for. there's so, there's so many little rabbit trails to go down. Yes. And maybe we can do that in, in yeah. a couple episodes of the Dusty Tome uh, around the time this episode releases, but we're just going to let that lie mm-hmm. and then basically say, okay, with all that said, yeah. Let's hear the story of Annabelle. Let's hear a story because here's a story that's going to take a lot of the commentary we just did, and we're going to leave you with this one, the story of Annabelle. In 1970, a young woman named Donna was just months away from graduating from nursing school. She and her roommate, Angie, were over the moon with excitement. So many hours of work had gone into this degree that would hopefully just be the beginning of a long and exciting career. It's really a surreal time for both of them. To help commemorate the times... Donna's mom thought it would be nice to buy her daughter just a small gift. She brainstormed and searched for the perfect thing and finally landed on something surprisingly simple that she knew would send just the right message to Donna. And it was a Raggedy Ann doll, just like the one Donna had had as a girl. Much to the delight of the mother, Donna loved the gift. She kept it right on her bed as a piece of decoration, just a little piece of childhood nostalgia and fond memories that she could see every day, no matter how grown up she became. A few days later, though, Donna and Angie began noticing some strange things about the doll. Nothing really crazy, just small things. For example, before Donna left in the morning, she would make her bed and set up her doll in a seated position in the middle of the bed, you know, like an accent pillow between two bigger pillows. But then, when she'd come home, She found that the doll was now lying on its back as if staring at the ceiling to find the faces hidden in the popcorn plaster. Angie would notice similar things. On occasion, she would go into Donna's room to grab a book from her roommate's shelf that she needed to reference for homework. But just out of the corner of her eye, she'd see the doll on the floor next to the bed. The good-hearted Angie would set up the doll where she belonged on the bed on her way out of Donna's room. Now, later, when Angie was done with the book and ready to put it back on the shelf, she would be a little unsettled to find that the doll had fallen back onto the floor again. Donna had not come home yet. She'd never heard any noises coming from the room. In another instance, the girls left for school together in the morning, having left the doll lying on the couch. When they also came home together after spending some time in the library, they did not find the doll on the couch. Instead, they saw it propped up on the leg of a chair at the kitchen table as if it were just standing there waiting for them. Ultimately, 
The girls rationalized these things as best they could and moved on. You know, the kind of thing that we do when something unusual, but but small and not too unsettling. We come up with explanations. We say, maybe it was this. Maybe I just forgot. Maybe I'm not remembering it correctly. But they continued to happen. And not only did they continue to happen, Ben, but eventually things escalated. The apartment where these girls lived wasn't very big or well-furnished. They were still, after all, just college students, not deep in their careers, not flushed with cash. One of the things they didn't have was a printer. Since they didn't have a printer, they also didn't have any blank printer paper on hand. Some notebook paper, sure, but none of the nice blank white stuff. Given this little detail, you can imagine the fear they might have felt when they began to find notes left around the house written in a child's handwriting. They would find messages like, help us and help Lou. The girls had a friend named Lou who visited them from time to time. And these notes would be written on torn scraps of that blank printer paper that they didn't have. The notes were always found right next to the doll. The camel's back finally broke when Donna came home one night to find that the doll had moved once again. This time she'd left it on the couch, but came home later to find it lying on her bed. Now at this point, the movement of the doll wasn't something that really scared them anymore. You know how a broken window on your car seems really bad at first, but after you tape it up with a trash bag and get used to it for a few days, you realize it's not so bad. Well, that's what was happening to the girls. Nothing too crazy was happening and the doll wasn't hurting them. Who cares if they have some miracles happening? It's good stories for parties, right? The only problem is Donna felt very different about the movement this time. As she approached the doll, she got the unstoppable urge to turn around, thinking there was surely someone behind her watching and stalking her into her room. It was just her though, just her and the doll. As she slowly picked it up to move it, still feeling uneasy about the whole thing, she noticed drops of some liquid on the doll's chest and hands. It looked almost like it could be blood. She showed Angie and the two girls agreed that they couldn't go on like this anymore. The whole mood of the apartment had turned to one of nervous fear in the weeks since they'd gotten the doll. It was finally too much to ignore. Not knowing what else to do, the girls decided to hire a medium to come and see if there was some sort of spirit haunting the place. Bad move. Bad move. Bad move. The medium arrived the next day and lo and behold, immediately held a seance to communicate with any restless spirits, their words, not mine, that might be in the doll. It is at this point that Donna and Angie were introduced to the supposed spirit of Annabelle Higgins, a girl who had lived in one of the houses that used to be on the property of their apartment building. The spirit described the happy times she shared with her family long before any planners had pegged their land for potential apartments. She said that she missed the old days. When asked why she was so young, she stated that she was killed when she was just seven years old. Her body was left in the field where the apartments now stood. She said that she felt comfortable with Donna and Angie, that the messages were just little pranks she was pulling on the girls, and that she wanted to stay with them if they would allow her to. Mm -mm. The girls, naive and with compassion welling up in their hearts for this little child unjustly killed at such a young age, said they would be happy to let her stay with them. They would regret that. For whatever this was, it was no girl. And what it was doing was far from innocent tricks. Now, Lou, that friend of Donna and Angie's I mentioned earlier, had never been fond of the doll. 
He had told Donna to get rid of this doll multiple times, claiming it brought some kind of evil into their lives. Obviously, Donna did not listen, and Lou would be the first one to pay a high price for her mistake. One night, Lou stayed over at the girl's apartment and slept on the couch. Must have been a long night of studying for the group's final exams or something. In the middle of the night, with the room very dark and quiet, Lou's eyes shot awake. The man was lucid, certainly and objectively awake. Only, he couldn't move. Lou was suffering an intense bout of sleep paralysis, something he had never dealt with before, and he began to panic and struggle to breathe. As his eyes frantically searched the room, the only thing that could move, looking for some answers as to why this was happening, he caught sight of some little red threads poking up from the other end of the couch. He fixated on them, knowing what they were, what they belonged to. Slowly, the doll raised its head above the edge of the couch, an unmoving smile sewn onto its face. As the doll crawled up towards Lou's face, he kept reminding himself that it wasn't real. It couldn't be real. But as he repeated this in his panicked mind, the doll began to strangle him until he finally blacked out or fell asleep again. When he awoke the next morning, he was terrified. He remembered everything and swore that it was not a dream. But of course, he had no marks on his neck and no way to really know what had happened. Now, with this absolutely horrible encounter piling on top of others that greatly affected both Lou and the girls, Donna came around to the idea that the spirit had tricked her. Duh. Duh. Clearly the medium did not help things since she herself was also deceived. Common medium L. Yes. Now, slow to simply discard the doll for fears that the evil might spread to others, Donna reached out to famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren for help. Over the course of their study into the matter, the Warrens allegedly experienced a number of harrowing events themselves. Right away, they concluded that this trio of freshly graduated young adults were far out of their league. It was not a haunted doll, rather it was a haunted apartment. And it was not some little girl's mischievous spirit haunting the place, it was a demonic entity seeking to possess one of the souls living there. The Warrens made very clear that spirits do not possess inanimate objects, they possess people. But while they seek a person to possess, they may latch themselves to some specific place. To them, at least, it was obvious. A malevolent spirit attached to the apartment had been using the doll as a tool to eventually invade the bodies of Donna or Angie. Just your regular Tuesday night. That's right. Accordingly, they asked for an Episcopalian minister to perform a rite of exorcism on the apartment while they took custody of the doll, with Donna's permission, of course, so that they could add it to their collection of mementos from their cases. We'll end our episode with the alleged story of what happened to Ed as he drove Annabelle to his home. If true, it displays just how wrong they were about everything that was happening. And remember, rest in the glorious protection of Christ. Even the demons believe and shudder. Put all your faith in him and be free from the fear of lesser things. After all, those lesser things fear the one to whom you belong. As the Episcopalian minister, Father Cook, performed the rite of exorcism on the apartment, Ed Warren loaded the Annabelle doll into the back seat of his car. Despite his confidence in the job being finished, the evil purged. He had some uneasy intuition about the whole thing. He decided to stay off the interstates, instead opting for back roads all the way home just in case. After a couple of miles, Ed felt an immense sense of hatred in the car. 
He felt sure that someone or something was sitting in the back seat, staring daggers into the back of his head, ready to attack him at a moment's notice. Before long, the car began to swerve and slide into neutral at every corner as the brakes started failing and the power steering no longer worked. Ed came close to colliding head-on with oncoming traffic dozens of times and nearly drove off the side of the road into a deep ditch just as often. This coupled with the growing and lingering air of dread in the vehicle left Ed in a state of pure panic. He desperately reached around and groped for his duffel bag next to the evil doll that sat in the back seat. He yanked it forward, unzipping the side pocket as fast as he could with one hand. He pulled out a small vial of holy water and pulled out the cork with his teeth before dousing Annabelle with the entire thing. He made the sign of the cross and called upon the name of Christ. According to him, everything stopped. The car worked again. The dread was gone and Ed could think clearly. He finished his trip and arrived safely home where he promptly stuffed Annabelle into a box and padlocked it shut. But might we conclude that even this seeming retreat at the holy water and ritual be a mask of deception? In the New Testament, demons are not dealt with via relics, via magical objects or complex rites, but rather through the direct power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could even these flights from supposedly holy water be nothing more than a trick? A way to deceive men into trusting in relics and rituals? Just more wicked magic rather than in the power of Christ? The end of the matter. Trust in the one who has conquered the grave, crushed the serpent's head. The one who throws down the dragon and through whom all powers and principalities are put to open shame. Trust in the crucified and yet risen Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you.